In a time of crisis, anything seems possible. In today's slow-moving descent into globalism, which James Bowery describes as a system that has turned us all into mechanical Turks, the recent emergence of a global pandemic has thrown all previous assumptions into question and opens the possibility for something new. With a strong science background in chemistry and computer science, James has worked on information theory, biofuels, and recently a concept he terms as property money. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss with James why the current system isn't working, what we should be striving for, and ultimately how we can best go about making these hoped-for changes a reality. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time feeling. The full resolution Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, we all here hope you're doing well in this very odd time of world history. Who knows when you're actually going to listen to this, but at the moment, uh, most countries are on virus lockdown. So if you listen to this a year from now and everything's blown over, well, I guess that was uh, for the best, but we'll see what happens. Uh, anyway, we have a very good guest uh, tonight to talk to us about a whole bunch of topics. Uh, he's been on the scene uh, for at least uh, 20 years. Uh, his name is James Bowery. Uh, James, thank you for coming on. Uh, we'll get into your background in a bit, but just uh, please say hello and thanks again. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. And I'm joined by my co-hosts, Hans and Nick. Please say hello. Hey, everyone. Hi, guys. Hello, as usual. <laughs> All right, so James uh, and I, we were discussing this a little bit before we started. Uh, he has so, such a long resume, it's a little bit difficult to kind of distill it down. But I would say from understanding this, you have a very technical background. You were um, working with some pretty famous people in computer science uh, at least uh, a while ago, uh, and you've made some interesting contributions. There was actually an even uh, a cool video game that you developed back uh, in, I guess, the 70s, what was it? Uh, yeah, was about it? so many... Yeah, yeah, and it, it's a, it's a three dimensional uh, space simulator, which is pretty advanced for that time. So I was impressed uh, by that. Uh, but the re- I guess the reason we're talking uh, actually is someone suggested we uh, we get in touch with you, and then I guess they maybe pointed uh, us to you as well. And so you made a comment on a recent episode we did on cybernetics, and uh, James has a pretty strong background in that, and he made a. Uh, one of the more detailed comments, I, I believe, uh, of anybody else. And so I, I took the chance to reach out to him and see if he wanted to connect. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with us. I mean, we have kind of a metapolitical historical perspective on things, but I guess tonight it'd be kind of interesting to sort of see how those two fit together. Uh, it's very common, I find, that a lot of people in engineering and things like computer science where you have to be very exacting and logical and mathematical uh, as opposed to 
being fuzzy and sort of vague, but you know, compared to something like social sciences, a lot of people in the, the harder sciences have a very difficult time dealing with the culture today. Uh, and we have sort of a background in that for the most part. And I think that's partly why our personalities are drawn to trying to resolve the hypocritical elements in our society that don't seem to add up in truth yet we're told all these very convenient lies uh, political correctness and whatnot uh things not really making sense you know free trade is great yet you know everybody just lost their job because you know all the factories are china right now uh things like that just they, they don't add up and so if you have this very exacting mind you you want to sort of try to resolve them and so that that's sort of my um my hypothesis as to maybe why you got into this uh, stuff. And maybe we can start with kind of how, uh, how your journey to the red pill as cliched as that may be at this point, I think it's sort of apropos to maybe tell us a little bit of your backstory, about how you kind of came from this very hard, hard technical field to being a little bit involved in dissident stuff and ending up on red eyes, for example. Uh, so James, maybe you can introduce a little bit of that. Sure. Um, well, one of the things that happened to me was I had a really high aptitude in chemistry. Like I was third in the state of Iowa high school aptitude. And uh, so I had really strong technical uh, motivation. I wasn't a great student is the problem. I was really self-motivated to do stuff like, you know, make nitroglycerin or whatever. But uh, the I got to the position where I was in, uh, like the president of the speech and drama club. And so I was kind of had a you know, foot in both worlds. And when I went to the University of Iowa, I got into a summer workshop on the strength of an essay I had done in high school that was uh, kind of affiliated with the writer's workshop at the University of Iowa, which is where you had guys like Tennessee Williams and, um, Anthony Burgess and Kurt Vonnegut, and were pretty pretty famous writers were. And I got into the the undergrad writers workshop. I also got into drama because I was doing drama in high school. And I discovered that the technical side of things was a lot more forgiving of somebody who had to deal with reality, right? In other words, there were I, I, I ran across all the stuff in the, the humanities side of things that had to do with people's egos and subjective judgments that just seemed to me to be kind of corrupt. And that's when I kind of decided that I wanted to be someplace where I would be judged on an objective uh, basis. And so I focused, I refocused everything on technical stuff, which got me into computers because, um, I mean, I, I work in a computer for artists uh, class, kind of their pet nerd, I guess, but I was doing my own art stuff as well. And then I kind of bolted from the whole thing and just became a tech guy because I wanted to do, I mean, I, I was so enthralled by the Plato network, which provided the 512 by 512 bitmap uh, display with the touch panel back in, you know, the early 70s. And I saw the potential of doing a, uh, a an intersubjective virtual reality on that uh, with some real time interaction because we had a quarter second response time for the to the CDC mainframes in Champion Urbana, so that's why I basically got sucked into computers. Was I, I was doing this virtual reality thing, which 
turned out to be pretty much the first time anybody had done anything like that. It was a first-person shooter kind of thing flying around called Space Sim. And uh, when I went to the University of Illinois to kind of go to the Mecca where the, where the mainframe was, I ran into uh, Heinz von Forrester at the Biological Computing Laboratory, who was like one of the founding fathers of cybernetics, and uh, had an opportunity to kind of get involved with him and some of his subculture in developing one of the first email systems and Delphi conferencing systems. And uh, from that, I became much more interested in things like uh, dealing with limits to growth uh, and Malthusian conflicts and stuff like that, because he had he had written a paper back in the early 60s that described what now people talk about as the singularity. So he basically fleshed out von Neumann's idea with a mathematical model that got published in Science. And I, you know, it was absurd because it goes into a vertical, you know, asymptote. You can't do that in the physical universe, but nevertheless, it was the kind of thing where <laughs> right. people talk, right? Um, and, but I, I started incorporating things like non-terrestrial resources into my, into my space game so that people could, you know, fight it out and take over and they, or they could go off and get non-terrestrial resources and, you know, support their population, but their populations would grow exponentially anyway and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. So that that kind of, I was really early on kind of dealing with a lot of issues that became salient more and more as people started realizing that there was no space program anymore because it was just it turned out to be just a Cold War contest to yeah. see who would be at the moon first, and that really pissed me off because you know I, I started realizing that I I identified a lot with my pioneer heritage in the United States. Mm. And it was, I was just, I, I thought that that really pissed me off <laughs> that they <laughs> went out there and just like said, okay, well, we did our, you know, zero sum thing. And so now you guys can get start, you know, going into Wall Street or whatever or become lawyers and you know, do do your do your humanity and, and counterculture thing and start lying to each other, which I decided I didn't want to do. Well, what, what was it like back then when... I don't even know what the conversation really focused on given today's insane social and political culture uh, where we're debating whether men can use women's bathrooms. I mean, it must have been a little bit more coherent back then, but I, I just from all the footage and from conversations with people, it does seem that the 70s were pretty weird as well. So maybe you can talk to that. Like, were people as hypocritical and full of it back then as they are today, would you say? Yeah, I, I think that uh, what happened during the 60s, you know, was all this, this positive something where everybody thought, okay, well, we've got enough for everybody and every, until it's like, you know, party down and somewhere of love and all that shit, right? Yeah. Um, and then about the time that the Apollo program turned out to be this this fraud, there and people realized that, oh, there isn't a frontier after all, but all of a sudden we're, now dealing with the you know turning over all of the stable family family formation jobs in civil mm-hmm. service for example to minorities and, and then immigrants who, yeah like how in the hell were they supposed to be getting in there 
then people that was that was the, and then women are going to the workplace and like the sexual revolution was souring and disco started taking off and now all of a sudden, right i mean it was boy it was, pretty bad <laughs> yeah it was it was like it was like this this like I don't know how to describe it, except you know maybe the the present situation. We've got this situation where you got this pandemic that's hit everything at once, mm-hmm. and you were that's in an environment where you know the political economy has gone through selling out all of the the social capital and yeah. getting everybody into debt. You know, so it's like you know this huge number, you know, a whole bunch of different dimensions where everything got attacked at once back then, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was just it traumatized the boomers, and the boomers just ended up. Uh, I mean, you know, I can talk about the boomers, but I'll, I'll just basically say that uh, the early boomers more or less made out okay because they got to surf the wave of all of the cheap labor coming up from the, from the younger boomers and all yeah. the pussy from the girls that were that were on the you know taking early birth control, which had side effects and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the mid-boomers you know, had difficulty because the, uh, the GI generation or the, quote, greatest generation and the early boomers all bought into the real estate. And the, the wages were going down to all the stagflation. And then you had the 19% fixed interest rate on the mortgages around 1981, yeah. which is when I bought my first house. Wow. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was just it was just really it, you know cluster f right mm-hmm. so uh i think there was just a whole lot of trauma that people never really recovered from right and th- during this entire time of course you had uh a lot of people who were being shoved into the cities from the small towns i grew up in a town a town of ten thousand, where you know if you didn't score like in the 95th percentile of standardized tests there was something wrong with you right <laughs> yeah uh and, uh, you know seriously iowa was like the top of the country in sats yeah you just if you adjust for participation rates, it went down to number two, with North Dakota being number one. And so the, the scholastic aptitude was just just really up there. And uh, the idea was we watched TV and we had to all live down our rural heritage. And so a lot of the people that I ran across at the University of Iowa, for example, go to the writer's workshop and, and they, were, they were more paused than a lot of people today because hmm. they were trying to be, be more cosmopolitan than what they saw, you know, the people in, on the TV is, or movies, you know, as being portrayed. So there was a lot of, well, it was sort of like the American hero was John Wayne and then it became Woody Allen in the seventies. Right. Yeah. Things like that were going on. And so, yeah, there was a, there was a, like really severe trauma. So uh, I think that you're basically dealing with a generation that you know could have conceivably done some really positive things, but they they didn't have a frontier to escape to from all of the stuff that was coming up to basically eat them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, basically the GI generation, the greatest generation, got fed the grandchildren by the powers that be and uh so that's why they didn't end up with a lot of grandchildren did you come to this uh perspective back then or is this something you've kind of taken the time to reflect upon and come to well i if you see my the stuff that i wrote when uh at&t got broken up in like 
84, I think. Well, it was, it was earlier than that. Okay. Um, but when the Plato Network was poised to go mass market, in fact, I was working on that and as part of my deal to go to work at Control Data Corporation. I, I insisted on being able to try to take it mass market. And uh, when we got it demonstrated that we could do that, uh, they, they said, you know, well, we want to just market to the, the Fortune 500. Then I got hired by uh, AT&T and Knight Ritter newspaper chain mm-hmm. to, to do what was ostensibly going to be a mass market thing going into the home, sort of like the internet today. That was like, you know, 81. And when I, I went down there and uh, I was in charge of their futures architecture because, you know, I had led the charge to do a mass market thing at Control Data Corporation and they knew that. And so... Is this like I, an intranet system? Maybe you can explain what the Plato network is. Well, there's, there's the Plato network and that was... That was at the Champaign-Urbana and Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, Control Data Corporation. If you've ever heard of Seymour Cray, yeah, sure. CDC was the company that he started with Bill Norris. Okay. And uh, Cray took off to form Cray Research yeah. from that after he had done it. So anyway, the 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 Plato Network was was one thing, and when I got involved with that, Norris, who was this like farming kid from nebraska that went off to world war ii to work on uh cryptography okay came back and uh started control data corporation with seymour cray there's a little story there but anyway uh when they started control data corporation they had cray cray insisted on on taking like about 30 34 guys i think off to his farm up in uh wisconsin and chippewa falls and he wanted it to be out there and out of touch with the headquarters of Minneapolis-St. Paul mm-hmm. so that he wasn't bothered by the management. And they went into direct head-to-head competition with IBM to produce the first supercomputer. Yeah. And they won. Uh, they, they, they developed the 1604, uh, and it really pissed off Watson. He wrote a, wrote a missive to his, his army of PhDs because there was no there was like... There was, there was only one PhD on Cray's staff, and it was a junior programmer, right? And all the rest of them was basically grunts. But they were you know, upper Midwest smart grunts, so they, they, they you know, trashed them. Well, that, that's but the it, great uh, legacy and history of uh, the computer industry back in the day, where you really did have these garage guys beating these giant corporations. And, I mean, you, you have some uh, relationship with people at Microsoft and back in the 80s uh, when... Uh, IBM was still trying to pump out its own operating system, OS2, I believe. Microsoft just made fun of them. I mean, they, 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 internally they would because they had this ostensibly corporate relationship, but internally they, they just viewed them as a bunch of idiots. And uh, they would call it uh, the IBM approach masses of asses uh, trying to glom together more and more, in this case, PhDs, but in, in that case, probably just you know typical engineers to try to solve a problem. And it really often is the case that you just have to have really a small team of smart people that can get things done. Well, it seems like they were trying to, uh, trying to emulate Bell Labs when in our show on Bell Labs, you know, I, I talked about how, uh, and James, I'd be curious to know if you, if you had any, when you were at AT&T, if you had any relation with uh, people from Bell Labs or the organization. But, 
you know, Bell Labs consolidated thousands and thousands of PhDs and, and well-accomplished academics alongside, you know, actual industrial engineers and um, hard science guys who they managed to kind of build teams or build like a wider network within Bell Labs to solve a multitude of problems. But I think that was um, very much sort of a, a unique phenomena outside of a few other organizations like maybe Skunkworks. Uh, yeah. What I saw, what I saw happen was the guys that were the best. I mean, really the best guys at the Plato Project in Champion Urbana uh, got sucked up by Bell Labs. And then you didn't see anything more out of them. Okay. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it's kind of like what their Google is, is hiring all these people. And I mean, I guess you could say well, the Google approach is, is even more insidious in that they just buy out small companies that deliver, you know, sort of microservices or yeah. deliver very, very specific product. And well, they, they also, they call that the aqua hires, the acquisition to actually end up hiring yes, these yeah, top people. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder what that actually does statistically to the output of these people it probably goes oh, yeah. down the, let's get some of the political economy shit but you, you got a situation in both at&t back when they were doing spell lab stuff in the 70s and with google today where you've got network effects that are supporting the profit of these entities sure and network effects you know, you've got a you've got a lock-in situation, so you don't have to really care. It's like Lily Thomas says, you know, we don't care, we don't have to with our phone company, and it's, right. it's like that now with with these network companies in Silicon Valley, and that's why they're getting filled up with all the paws. Okay, it just it's just a, a really unhealthy thing they to let. It. Yeah, it's really unhealthy to to let network effects be privatized. Okay, and. Uh, you know, whenever you do that, you end up with bad things. And I've got to take umbrage about this Microsoft stuff because this is one of the things that I kind of parted ways with Ray about, which is, you know, I was, when I was at, at Champion Urbana, in fact, the reason that I told Control Data Corporation that I insisted on being given a shot and the resources to try to take Plato in that mass market is because I had gotten a hold of the uh, data sheets on the 8086 before the first silicon had been pressed from Intel. Hmm. And I got a hold, uh, I got a guy, I got a couple of guys that were system programmers. I wasn't a system programmer at the time, but because I got, had a roommate that was a system programmer and uh, also one of the uh, sort of legendary programmers and I, and nobody else has heard of him but we he's a, to us he's a legend don lee we we managed to put together some macros in the uh in the cyber assembly language to emulate the 8086 because i wanted to get an operating system done first hmm. and the reason i wanted to get an operating system done first was because of the fact that i saw there would be an enormous network effect on this hardware hmm. which there was. It's called MS DOS, thence Microsoft, right? Right. And so we started developing the stuff, and I got the offer from Control Data Corporation up in Minneapolis to stop my, you know, basically break up my team down there in Champion Urbana and go up to become a system programmer, which in that day, that was like a big elevation of status, but there was no way I was going to take that and turn my back on being able to get this network effect on the 8086, okay? And 
the only way that they got me to go was I did insist on being able to take the Plato Network mass market, which would have been basically like having a bunch of Macintoshes all on the internet circa 1979. Because hmm. that's more or less our capabilities back then. Okay, And it was only after they... Well, I, I'll go into the network effect stuff a little bit further, but you know, you understand, I'm not real happy with Gates. <laughs> okay? Because yeah. what I was trying to do was I was trying to make sure that there was a good operating system that would be developed as the first one get out of the box on this 886 platform. And when I saw what Gates did, I just couldn't. I mean, it, it, it happened. Well, I, they I didn't saw, even develop MS-DOS. I mean, it was they bought DOS, and then they put MS in front of it, but it was from some other dude in Seattle, Seattle Computer yeah, Corporation yeah, or something. That, that's neither here nor there. Well, the, the thing that Gates did was he saw the opportunity for a network effect. Yeah. IBM didn't, by the way. Okay? Right. And the network effect was between the software and hardware vendors and the customers for software, okay? And that, that, that was possible because IBM's PC architecture was open. The, the BIOS and the bus was open. So it was possible to do clones, which Phoenix BIOS did. Yeah, and then anybody can produce these, these, these boards for it. And IBM had this big name, so when they rolled this thing out, and had just barely enough resources to actually do some really useful things. And Gates was a genius. It's an evil genius, in my opinion. Okay, but he was a real genius in, in going in just like buying this piece of shit and then foisting it off on IBM to be distributed so that it would become this network effect standard, locked in, and he owned it. Mm-hmm. And then everything that he did from that point on, I mean, sure, you know, there, you have lots of worse people out there than Gates, but, you know, that's, you know, damning with faith praise. So when I, when I ran across, you know, opportunities, I mean, when, when Ray started telling me in the early 80s that, you know, he was getting tight with Gates and, you know, I started talking about, like, Ray is such a piece of shit operating system that I... You know, and he said, well, I know, it's got threading, and it's like, yeah, but, you know, I was looking at the Digital Equipment Corporation, you know, RSX, 11, real-time operating systems and things. Uh, and uh, anyway, that's that's sort of water under the bridge, but it's the kind of thing where I, I'm not real happy with any kind of network effect company because of the fact that they're all fed by this kind of vendor lock-in thing. Mm-hmm. And that means that it's like parasites can smell that stuff from 10,000 miles away, which is exactly what happened with India. Well, it's sort of the interesting thing about how you want to call it capitalism or America works is this is what gets funding because it really is a good business. And uh, if you if you know Peter Thiel, I mean, he wrote a book about this called Zero to One and his argument in that and it's sort of funny and i'm not the only person to make this uh criticism or point at least is he's ostensibly comes from a libertarian background but his book is really all about creating monopolies and his point though is that in business you you have to do that because otherwise you'll get killed at least in technology um so i don't know how you envision an alternate system uh but 
I don't know. Maybe maybe we would be worse off if we if we had like Goss plan deciding all of the uh, all of the operating systems for us. I mean, how how would you structure it? I mean, would you have something that could could improve upon what we have today? Oh yeah, that's 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 why I'm doing property money, which which has background going back to privatizing space launch services with the Launch Service Purchase Act of 1991. Hmm. You can find my testimony before Congress on, on my my blog, which is Feral Opera, uh, Observations, like in Feral Cat, right? Uh, but basically, you know, I worked with some libertarians to to get the get NASA out of competition with space launch companies. And we got the law passed. And uh, once it got passed, I went to work for a company that was taking the uh, Peacekeeper missile uh, manufacturing <laughs> Manufacturing. You gotta love that name, by the way. Yeah, it's great. Uh, and but you know, we were we were gonna take it and turn it into a satellite launch system, right? After this log up. Okay. Yeah. And and in the process of doing that, I was looking around at the at the other launch service companies like Gary Hudson's and stuff, and it just it occurred to me, and it had really been kind of an awareness that that had been going on for some time since I had been working at. At AT and T, and I saw a lot of this network effect garbage. Uh, that there was a capital market failure, and so since I had just gotten through getting rid of the techno socialists from the space launch service industry, I kind of did have an obligation to deal with the capital market failure. And the libertarians, of course, don't see a capital market failure because they see, like Thiel no distinction between the kind of monopoly that you have when you have, for example, a patent on something you've invented versus a lock-in because of network effects, mm -hmm. where the bigger you are, the more customers you have, the more customers want to be on your network because, like, why are, where else are they going to be, right? So my analysis of this was that the tax basis was incorrect, that you don't want to tax activity. What you want to do is you want to tax net assets. And in the same white paper that I wrote okay. after after the testimony before Congress about privatizing this, you know, getting rid of the techno socialists. Okay, at the same that this was coupled with what people now talk about as being a UBI or unconditional basic income. Well, I think oh, I, yeah. I understand this better now. When I was trying to work through your blog post, um, you had some examples which I could understand, but I was trying to understand what, what your objective was. And I, I think this sort of backstory helps me understand that because it sounds like you're trying to tax uh, private network effects that don't generate additional value to society. So in other words, if if you're Google, right, and you've got basically this lock-in that you 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 have all this money that you don't know what to do with at this point. And you could say the same thing about Apple, honestly, although the network is, I mean, they have a network because they have iOS and things like that. Uh, they have huge amounts of money. And is it really socially optimal to let them have that half trillion dollars or whatever Apple has, uh, as opposed to letting some of that return to upstarts that maybe can actually do more innovation and things like that. So maybe that's—is that where you're coming from? If, if I'm yeah, mistaken. and and if you really think about it, okay, if in an, an in an anarcho-capitalist situation, 
centralization of wealth like that is going to become a target of people who just want that property, right? Yeah. And they'll do whatever it takes to get that property, which... Well, violence uh, is the obvious one, if it's anarchical. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. you know, violence, but really, you know, our, our civilization has decided fraud's more honorable, right? Right. So they'll, they'll do whatever they have to do to get that damn network effect. And what you really want is you want, in an anarcho-capitalist system, you want things to be set up in such a way that when you've got a property right you want protected, well, there's costs associated with that. Just like there is in property insurance, right? Mm -hmm. So how much do you pay, for example, the ownership of Google's network effect or Facebook's network effect? Yeah. You're going to pay a whole lot more than you're paying in income tax for those companies. And YouTube, which like hardly has any income, it's like, <laughs> you, know, mm, you know, you're basically... You know, you're going to basically they have to start actually serving their customers. OK, if they don't and, you know, if they don't start making money with their assets as opposed to just like having their assets, then they're going to go. They're going to go south. So well, what, you, what you do is you, you take you take out the D.C. component of the signal and you leave the, the, the deltas, which is where you've got all the marginal gains. So let's take YouTube. That's an interesting example because one could argue that YouTube is providing a massive consumer surplus, to use the economic jargon, in effect because they're not making any money. But the value that I or you or whoever watches a YouTube video is, is a lot more than probably what their time is worth watching that little ad at the bottom. Uh, so if you stripped away the funding source for that, given that they're barely making it, you know, break even, if that, uh, you could argue that that might actually be harmful. So would you have any thoughts on that sort of situation being helped or hurt by your proposal? No, what, what, what YouTube is doing is they're essentially operating as a social control mechanism. <laughs> well, we agree. We were kicked off of YouTube, by the way. We were on there until we got 10,000 subscribers. Then uh, see ya. But yeah, right. they, setting they, that are, aside, I mean, there are still some useful. They're, they're not, they're not in it with the money, buddy. They're mm -hmm. not in it with the money. Yeah, yeah. They've got the network effect, and they're using it to achieve non-capitalistic aims. Yes. Yes. And that's that's why the leftists and these so-called you know crony capitalists are in bed with each other. But was that always the goal? I mean, this has become much more apparent after Trump. Basically, let's be honest. I mean, there was. I remember actually all these other platforms were deplatforming people. Uh, maybe like right after Trump got kind of got going, but it was for the longest time. It was like, wow, YouTube is not doing anything, and I think they realized kind of late that maybe they do. If they if they well they can afford it obviously but they do want to control that because it is a big uh, platform for people who don't agree with their politics and so I'm wondering you know if that was really always the case because it seems like it may not have been. Well, this, this gets back to the thing that I did with AT and T, okay? Because I was I was actually sort of got sidetracked from completing that story. But anyway, what happened? I went there and I was working on the on the futures architecture for this okay. thing, which if it had been rolled out, we would have had 64-bit IP addresses, for example. Okay. And a variety of other things. Okay. Um, and I was actually 
working with David Reed, who uh, did like one of the original architectural things for the internet on that at the time. But what, what I did when I went down there was I looked at the market tests that they had run and it was in line with what I had experienced at the Plato network. Basically it said that people wanted blogs, meaning that people would like provide content to each other. Right. Okay. So I architected the system. It's basically the same way I was architecting the Plato network before they decided they wanted to not do mass market to provide that kind of stuff, which is basically the web. Okay. Um, I could go into the technical details of that all, but the point is that when I presented this to the joint venture guys, it was the joint venture was called View Data Corporation of America. The service was called Viewtron. There's a slash dot slash dot article called Why Didn't the Internet Take Off in 1983? Hmm. And you, if you go in there, a comment by Balderson, who is me, titled "Video Text and the American Pioneer," has a ha, this essay that I wrote back in 82 talks about there will come a time when the American pioneers utilizing this network that's emerging will be able to reach each other and bypass what I called the feudalists. Uh, okay. Do you feel and like I that's said, what we're doing today? I, and I, I said, mean. well, and I said, and when that happens, there will be a tremendous danger that deregulation will be pursued to the point that content will be re-centralized and be under the control of the feudalists again. Yeah. That was 82 when I wrote that. That's a good point. That's a good, very good point. And, and that's exactly what happened with the Trump election. Okay. The, the you know, heritage Americans got in touch with each other and they said, we got to stop this nightmare. And then the libertarians, the, you know, <laughs> is... What can you say except the you know the libertarians that just say well yeah it's you know let's go ahead and privatize separate censorship that's no problem who needs a first amendment right because <laughs> it's, it's all private right what a nightmare i remember i, I got into uh an argument with alex Narasta. he's this uh goon i believe he's at cato or he was at cato at one point he's uh this libertarian diehard and he was basically asserting that uh it's no problem. This is back maybe two, three years ago. It's no problem if Google engages in uh, massive censorship on their search platform. And it's no problem if Cloudflare kicks people off of its DNS protection service and you know things like that. It's no problem if uh, your contract with your DNS provider or uh, your web hosting provider or you know whomever is suddenly terminated without clause, without cause and without... Uh, Real reason, uh, you know, in, in our case, all our, our Google account was completely purged from uh, from YouTube, and just the Google platform in general, without uh, without warning and without any real reason given. And you know, he was basically saying that uh, this is totally fine, that this is actually a better form of censorship because then people will quote vote with their dollars. But when you exist, you're talking about, you know, capital markets and network effects have made it impossible to, you know, vote with your dollars. Yeah, it's not practical. It's the same thing as like, okay, vote with your dollars. Don't go to Walmart. Don't go to Amazon. It's like, well, okay, my my cost just doubled. How am I supposed to compete? Like, you have to have a level playing field. And that's the problem with like letting these gigantic, I mean, let's face it, the corporations have more power than 
the government at this point. They're more organized at the very least. They can achieve things faster, which in some ways is good. But when you get to the size that we're talking about today, they really are second, third, and fourth uh, governments. I mean, in practical effect, you know, you have you're you're impacted more by these. I hope I don't sound like Noam Chomsky, by the way, but you're impacted more by these big corporations than the government. And, um, you know, I come from a libertarian background and I think the government is kind of a shit show, but there has to be some balance because one or the other, you centralize power. It, it doesn't matter if it's got, uh, you know, dot gov or dot com at the end of it, there's still people and they still get corrupt. And if you give them more and more power, they're going to abuse it. That's where I come from. I, I don't think I don't view it as an either or. I think it's just a scale thing mainly. Yeah. Well, back in when I was first writing this, is like I said, they had just were getting around to breaking up AT and T, right? Which is this big monopoly over communication. Yeah. The thing is that they, you know, you call up somebody on the phone, even to this day, it works. Uh, it works. You, you you can talk to each other without worrying about being censored for your conversation. This is called common carrier status. Hmm. Okay. And so the point that I was trying to make in that essay was we got to make sure that people's content is covered under common carrier status. And what that means is that nobody can interfere with the communication content itself. Where all the competition occurs is in the filters. All right. Is the difference? You have an example. What do you mean okay. by filters? Okay, um, when, Google, when Google or when YouTube or Twitter or Facebook censors something, they claim that they're doing it because you're not interested in this or you shouldn't be interested in this, right? Okay. Now, you're saying, wait a second. <laughs> I am interested in this and I should be interested in this. So now where do I go for a an alternate filter on this content? And they say, you can't go anywhere because we own the content. Oh, I see. So what you need is open standards for pushing the stuff out and then have competition on the, on the filters. That's kind of like, a, I don't know if you're familiar with Mencius Moldbug's blog, uh, Unqualified Reservations. He talks about this concept called a neocameralism. It's having uh, free free travel between different uh, regions of the world, but each region has basically an ironclad lock on the set of rules they have. And it's not really democratic, so to speak. The, the only democracy is where you choose to live. So if you don't like it, leave. But you can't vote any changes in. And so it's sort of a rough analogy, but I thought it'd be an interesting segue if you are familiar with that concept because you know we've... Uh, been fairly familiar with people in that sphere of things if not That's don't, don't worry about it yeah the jurisdictional arbitrage is, is yeah sort of like sure now i you know there, there's this thing that i've been doing for quite a while that that's that's sort of related to that and it gets clear back clear back to uh wilmot robertson's book uh the uh the ethnostate um which i took and generalized you know in, in, in something i'm calling sartocracy and actually established a church that has as a, a central component of it uh, a sortocracy's single human right, which is to vote with your feet. Okay? But the thing is that that's coupled with 
an absolute right to exclude anybody for any reason whatsoever from the territory. Yeah, well, that, that's where you get into the arguments these days because a lot of people will, or most people say, like, if you want to leave, you can leave. But a lot of people who will agree with that will not agree with the fact that wherever that person wants to go uh, doesn't necessarily have a right to go there. And right. So, And, and I, I take it a step further and, and say no prisons. Yeah, well, Nick will agree with you on that one. So what <laughs> ends up happening is you have, you have exile, okay? And it's like, okay, well, you're out of here. And by the way, we now have to be much more careful about who we let in. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And, gotcha. Yeah. And, and this, by the way, fits right in with the epidemic. And, I pre- and partially I came up with this because of my recognition of something in evolutionary medicine having to do with the evolution of virulence, which is horizontal transmission between immobile hosts, okay? Because the pathogen can, you know, exploit a host to death and still get to another host. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's how virulence evolves right Mm -hmm. so you want to make sure that you have whatever your human ecologies are you want to make sure that they do not permit that kind of horizontal transmission at least for people who don't want virulence to live with them okay whether that virulence is in the form of a virus or in terms of like an exploitative or parasitic culture yeah well and I, i mentioned this as well in our correspondence over email uh, the stuff around propertarianism and Hans will probably recoil immediately when I remind him of that. But we had a guy on who uh, is pretty well spoken, who is friends with this guy, Kurt Doolittle, who also has some, I think, ties, former ties to Microsoft. I don't know if you know about what he's been up to, but he's trying to kind of attack parasitism. That seems to be the, the main focus of what propertarianism is about. And uh, it's kind of funny to hear his. Uh, his views on things and himself as well. But uh, are you familiar with that? Do you have any comments? Yeah, on people, people have been, yeah. People have been for years saying that Kurt and I should be talking. And, uh, you disagree. <laughs> and well, no, no, I, I really do think we should be talking, but he considers me to, to be uh, not, a, not intelligent enough to talk to him. You know, that's, that's not <laughs> fair at all. I, you know, he's not, you're dumb, not missing out on anything. Trust me. I have not heard any, unbelievable insights from him i've heard some good stuff but for him to think that you're beneath him that's ridiculous that's ridiculous so basically part of what's going on is that because he you know there there was a long time when people are saying you guys should be talking to you guys should be talking and so i went to his blog and i posted some stuff yeah and he just he just kind of blew me off right this is ego i'm sorry (laughs) this this is sad (laughs) so i i kind of went after him um, and then he like, you know, went after me cause I, you know, he's got a higher IQ than I, I do or something. Oh, God. And it's like, well, that, that's, that's fine for you to say that, but it, you know, it doesn't help if you've got a high IQ and you're wrong. <laughs> you know? Well, it, it, can I make a, another point? It's like, look, uh, if you have a sports team, if you got two guys with high IQs, if one guy's got a higher IQ than the other guy, he shouldn't kick him off the team. You know, it, it's stupid. And this, I think this is the problem with a lot of very high IQ people, they they like to do everything themselves. And a lot of it is like they want the credit for it, but they also they don't know how to deal with other people. And I think that's unfortunate because I think, you know, 
Well, you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to take off after do a little personally. I, I, you know, he, he's got this thing that he's doing. He calls King of the Hill, right? Hmm. And uh, so it's sort of like I, I don't really know exactly what it's about, but it seems like it's it's kind of a a form of ritual combat to, in the public to get more followers or something. <laughs> and it, it, it there's. Actually, this this does get down to a, a a really fundamental thing that has to do with the way I approach human ecology, okay? And this includes like sartocracy, because if you think about if you're going to go to exile as your primary mode of say crime and punishment, there's going to be some people that just are not going to be accepted anywhere, right? Right. right. So what do you and, do with them? Yeah, well, you you go to what I call the state of nature. Now, we've all heard about natural law and the state of nature from the libertarians. So is this like the Hunger Games? Like these guys are like, just like dumped in some forest somewhere? Well, if you, if you define state of nature the way I do, no, that's not what you do. Okay? The way I define state of nature, which I would think should be consistent with libertarians, at least in their ostensible rhetoric, is anytime you have two people coming to an understanding about how they're going to defend some kind of set of property, right? You're out of nature now. You're an artifice. You've got an artificial selection regime. Yeah. Okay? Now, what precedes that is intrasexual selection between males going back 600 million years. You want to talk about tradition? Let's talk about tradition. Okay. I try to get this across to guys that are, you know, I've been trying to get people around here, for example. It was like a duel? What are you getting at? Well, let's talk about why Europeans are unique. Ah, the okay. million dollar question. That's right. Because if you don't get this straight, you're going straight to hell. Right? Well, you mean eugenics? <laughs> you've, got to eugenic, you've, got, you've got to get the eugenics right. Okay. Yeah. Don't get the eugenics right, then you're not going you're just gonna end up in some kind of, you know, you know, shithole country, right? So my proposal is that there is this deep history of intersexual selection that generated nervous systems. So you go back, can you can you contrast to... intrasexual from I guess intersexual? I'm not sure what what paradigm well, it, you're trying it, it, to contrast. You know, male intrasexual selection mm -hmm. is competition between males yeah. to propagate their genes. Right. Okay. And for the vast majority of evolutionary history of sexual species, this was one male against one male. Right? Oh, you mean when they're fighting over a woman, like th there's a match between the suitors? Is this this canonical example? That's, that's, that's one reason that they, that, that's the general thing that people see, oh, the, 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 the bucks are out rutting, right? Yeah, right. But, but you know, this is true across species. That could yeah, be with multiple competitors, though. Like, I, why is it constrained to two? This is my question, I guess. It, well, you know, if you if you look at some movies, you'll find that, you know, you'll have a bunch of bucks that are, there's one doe in heat and they'll all be like, you know, fight each other, but it's generally one, one on one. Okay. Yeah. At a time. Right. Um, but I'm just trying to say that, you know, we can make fun of this, but if you, 
you know, because like Hollywood makes it into the, like this thing where at the end of every movie you got some kind of mano a mano thing going on, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but you got to be really careful about just like blowing that off as some like something that animals do. Because if you try to replace that, for example, with what this civilization has, which more or less is, you know, a battle of words to be able to like win in a court. Yeah, well, I think money too is huge. I mean, the battle well, yeah. of how much money, money is, you have. Money is, is huge, except for the things you, you get money adjudicated in courts. You always have dispute resolution systems, right? Sure. It's very verbal. It's obviously not physical. Right. So you've got this verbal thing, and then people use their words, and they reach past their neocortex down into the limbic system. And this is one of the things that Kurt's trying to get away from hmm. with his language. Okay. He's trying to, trying to make it so that we don't use language in a way that subverts reason. Okay. And, okay. you know, it's like, well, okay, that's a nice goal to try to achieve. That, that, that. sounds very idealistic. But okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on, dude. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's I like, mean, you know, it's a it's a it's a laudable goal, and I would certainly like to have Kurt, you know, territory in which he can like do whatever it is he thinks going to work as a as a human ecology. Yeah. But don't make me live that under that. Yeah. Okay. I kind of said that to his uh, his right hand man, and I don't know if he kind of liked what i was saying which is like look this if this concept is so great go build proprietarian uh you know incorporated somewhere and then let's see what happens but you know don't force it i mean that's that's the thing so so getting getting back to the the origin of europeans and why and this is one of the things that that you know kurt kurt believes that europeans are the way they are because they've been domesticated he call he talks about domesticating right well but chinese have too they had a very interesting actual conversation about the different uh peoples and histories and i think he acknowledges that but i don't know what your thoughts are and i mean europeans are not the only domesticated people i would just say that yeah well i the thing is that my my argument is that if well for example you look at uh, wd hamilton's paper uh the social uh the innate social aptitudes of man Mm. which you know uh, was taught, I don't know, you know who Hamilton is, right? He's the guy that I, I came don't up. actually. If you okay. Ham- Hamilton this. came up with the basis of sociobiology and, and you know, inclusive fitness. Okay. Okay. And uh, how you get altruism out of selfish genes, right? Okay. Um, so, anybody, he, he wrote this paper where he's trying to grapple with the mathematics of group selection and how you would, you know, go from an individual, you know, gene to like groups of genes and how you get, then get. You know, groups of people being able to cooperate, but you, you know, right, right. So he went through all the game theoretic stuff in this paper, mm-hmm. and uh, interesting. It, the it's a really important paper. Uh, one of the things he talks about in there is that the uh, incursions of barbarian pastoralists is his term for it. Yeah, does not seem to him to have have caused as much damage as people think. In fact, he thinks that the uh, infusion of these kind of heroic genes from uh, very undomesticated people in combination with the mercantile thoughtfulness of the civilized people. So you're talking about uh, ancient Rome and the barbarians. Is that the time period? Well, no, no he's, I mean, he's, he's talking, talking about the, the Indo-European expansion into Europe. Am I right? You've got you've got a series of incursions like this. Yeah. You've got the Dorians coming in. Okay. You've got you've got you know the the Aryans going into northern India. You've got uh, 
various various cycles. You got you got the Goths coming into Rome as as it's declining. You've got the Vikings coming in to the to the Christianized areas. Okay, you always got these undomesticated people coming in. And his 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 hypothesis was mm-hmm. that about eight hundred years later, this mixing of the mercantile thoughtfulness with these heroic genes ends up with a Renaissance. Okay, and the absence of this kind of war kind of conflict allows this sort of you know well the way he talked about it was this inventiveness this heroic inventiveness benefits people whose genetic relationship to the inventor may be very slight and that therefore civilization tends to select out creativity Hmm. and that requires another incursion of these undomesticated folks okay mm, i could the persian see empire, some of well the, yeah. the persian empire went through a a very similar thing with its uh sort of scythian and broader ironic cousins up in the steppe and you know every hundred years there would basically be a series of uh calamities where the border regions would get invaded and then the the internal core of, per, of the persian plateau would get invaded and sacked by basically their cousins and there would always be a huge growth period afterwards. And eventually this led to the rise of the Persian Empire as being capable of taking down its immediate neighbors and then posing a threat to Greece, as is uh, sort of made apparent in many of the, the Greek heroic traditions. And I think, in fact, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the people that we came to know as the great Greeks of antiquity, the Golden Age Greeks, were themselves invaders from the north who sort of pushed their way in and pushed out uh, the Mycenaeans and others out of uh, the, the Hellenic Peninsula. And so there was a, later this great clash between these two sort of uh, great heroic cultures who had gone through several cycles of uh, purging and sort of new creativity over time. Hmm. It, is, it is a noticeable trend. And if you read um, Ancestral Journeys, which is a massive book, mostly about the, the genetic and uh, hagiographic nature of Europeans, uh, if you really see that these series of incursions, starting as far back as 6500 BC, have slowly made Europeans into uh, the people we you know came know today, and as we all are on this call, people who are very adept at a multitude of things and also have an appreciation for the heroic. Most cultures... Do not have both of those traits. Most, you know, emphasize one or the other, or don't emphasize either. I think that's that's a very interesting hypothesis. How can you though say that other cultures have had less of this, like incursions and invasions? I guess you can quantify it. Um, I don't know what if Hamilton. You can quantify it. I mean, there. I'm sure there have been, and you can probably make the argument that most of the great civilizations have, at one point or another, suffered. Yeah. Uh, horribly in, in their early phases in order to give them a breath of expansion. I mean, the Romans, I mean, the Romans had barely even conquered the Samnites and started to move in on the Etruscans. They were basically devastated by their first contact with Celts. Uh, this is early on in the history of Rome. Rome was still, I think, a kingdom at that point, and it was completely devastated. Now, fast forward a few hundred years, 
and Rome owns all of Gaul well into Central Europe, right. all of Iberia, and has basically wiped out the Celts from their dominant position in Europe. It was this, you know, there are these phases where you could probably make the argument, although I don't know enough Mesoamerican history to make this argument, that the Incan, Mayan, and Aztec empires, uh, I think, went through similar processes where they were effectively the civilizations of people who had been conquered and brutalized by tribes surrounding them and slowly uh, inculcated those traits with their own uh, sort of pastoralist traits and built these yeah. huge civilizations. They built islands out of nothing in the middle of lakes. They built massive stone temples. Yeah, that was the Aztecs, I believe. Right, but they, the, in Tenochtitlan and places like that. that they even were, the Aztecs, and I believe the Incans as well, they don't even have like when the Spaniards visited them I just learned this recently so take this with a grain of salt but I've heard that when the first European explorers visited those still somewhat intact civilizations the people said that they had no idea where those monuments came from that's that's also true and in, uh, when Cortez first came to America the civilizations that he did encounter, like the, you know, basically admitted that they were squatters, that they had kind of moved in as far back as they can remember. Yeah. And this stuff was already there, and they kind of tried to carry on with the traditions they thought had been enacted before them. Uh, he also, fun fact, he also thought he had physically located hell when he arrived in, uh, in Mesoamerica. That, that's a direct quote. He yeah. actually, he wrote in, in a letter that he, he assumed at first when he saw the piles of skulls and oh, the temples God. that he had physically located hell and was uh, kind of somewhere at the entrance to it or something like that. Well, yeah, any, there's anybody... no reason to believe that, that it matters what kind of, you know, barbarians are incurring, uh, incurring on your territory. Right. One of the things that seems to be a reasonable hypothesis, and this uh, I was going to try to get back to this thing about sort of the you know, the, the ultimate state of nature, right? Um, if you go back to when the Cro-Magnon were coming into Europe, or you know, forty thousand years ago or thereabouts, um, they were expanding into a, a region where you had a lot of megafauna and so there was a lot of really, you know, just a, whole, a huge amount of meat that you could get for a group, but there would tend to be a lot of waste, right? I mean, you'd like take down all these mammoths, yeah, and you're going to have trouble. Now, maybe the Neanderthals weren't so wasteful because they'd been around there for a while co-evolving, but uh, the thing about the, the Cro-Magnon is they, they seemed to have something about the way that they went about hunting that was superior. Now... One of the things that I talked about in, in Race, Gender, and the Frontier, which I wrote about the same time that I did this tax stuff and the space stuff back in the early 90s, was this, this cycle of expansion of peripheral beta males, if you will, from polygamous groups. Okay. Right? Like Islam, yeah. you know, the outward invasion forces of these guys who can't get a date because the sheik has a thousand wives kind of thing. Right, except, except when, we're, when we're dealing with, you know, very early hominids, right? It's a different kind of thing okay. because you go out there and there's, there's no society to parasite off of, right? So, uh, Well, how, how big, I, I don't expect anyone to really know this, but, I mean, do you know, uh, to the best of your knowledge, how big the actual uh, 
packs or clans, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I would imagine these groups of people were pretty small. So how big could the polygamous groups could actually grow to? It's, it's not going to be uh, Scheherazade levels where you've got... No, you know, oh, you, you just, all you have to do is look at just, just like, you know, a gorillas, right? Okay. Or, or uh, you know, chimpanzees or anything like that. You tend to have a That's centralization a good point. Good for jelly, right? Um, so what you what you end up with, I suspect, in the hominins was you had some guy that couldn't get laid, you know, some some incel, right? Yep. And he goes out, and for some reason, he's able to figure out that he can spike two stones together and make a make a make a blade, and now all of a sudden he can get more food, right? Yeah. And then he can like offer some food to a a, a girl, and they have kids. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's the beta male strategy. That's right. Yeah, and and so now you've got this like little monogamous couple out there at the periphery of the of the ecological range, and then you know that the 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 sons get the genes of this guy, and he teaches them, and then they can you know do the same thing, and you actually expand the ecological range of the hominins, right? Yeah, and then you do like the same thing with fire, right? Now somebody can make fire, and now you can expand the ecological range more, right? Well, I think happened with the Cro-Magnons. It's sort of like this, where you have this, this Cro-Magnon group that's taking down these, these megafauna. And there's lots of scraps. So what happens when you have lots of scraps that you leave behind? Scavengers? Yeah. And now what's the primary scavenger in Northern Europe? Uh, I don't know. Wolf or vulture? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you got vultures. You probably have wolves too, right? So now let's say you've got some beta male that's not really able to get along with the Cro-Magnon group. And he's got to go out and he maybe doesn't have any technology that he's got on his, you know, he, he can't like, you know, invent a, you know, iPhone. But, <laughs> you know, he's out there and he's got to like follow around and like the wolves, he's got to follow around and, and eat the scraps, right? Mm-hmm. So now he's going to be in competition with the wolves for the scraps. And, well, he may, may get eaten. On the other hand, he might not get eaten. He might be able to fight them off, right? Yeah. So what happens in a wolf pack if somebody wins a fight? Comes the leader. That's right. Okay. Can you follow the logic a little bit further now? Yes, I, I do. I Again, I just wonder how... So you think it's sort of the hunter-gatherer with lots of uh, hunting opportunities that makes Europe unique? That's always... I'm coming back to this point. It's like what separates Europe? This type, the, the logic makes sense, but wouldn't the logic apply elsewhere in the world is, I guess, my question. Well, yeah, yeah the logic would apply. That, but the thing is that Cro-Magnon were first up there in Europe, right? And they did expand. There was this sort of archaic, I shouldn't say archaic, but you know, really early uh, expansion of humans that have Caucasoid characteristics across Eurasia. I mean, you go back and uh, like the Jomon culture in, in, in Japan even, okay, you've got these the Ainu and stuff like that. You've got this this like really ancient spread that occurred, and if you follow the the, the logic through, just, just go with me a bit further here, okay? Mm -hmm. 
as you start over hunting because you're being wasteful of the megafauna, now you have to worry about the caloric requirements of your co-hunters. Right? Okay. Now, which takes more calories, a man or a dog? I believe a man. Really? They're heavier. I mean, usually. But I'm so, not sure. It, metabolism, I'm sure, is a factor. I'm just saying, you know, follow that logic through, right? Mm-hmm. Now you've got a situation where, where instead of, you know, mammoths, you have, say, just aurochs or deer or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And so the hunting groups that consist of at least partially dogs are going to be more successful yeah. because you've got this dominant intelligent thing, you know, the, the, the alpha is a, is a man and you've got his betas, which are these dogs or they're, you know, proto dogs. Right. And we see evidence of multiple starts on evolution of dogs going clear back 30 some thousand years in Europe. Makes sense. Okay. So you now have a guy who has domesticated wolves, but he's not domesticated except perhaps by the wolves in an exchange. Right. One of the things that you might look for if you thought that wolves were co-domesticates with humans is a co-adaptation. Like for example, greater empathy on the part of the human for the wolves. And we actually find an oxytocin receptor that is most common in Northern Europeans that is shown to elicit empathy for animals. So it's, you probably have thought of this, but it's, it's pretty well known and they're obviously trying to scrub this from the evidence pile, but uh, East Asians, I think Japanese excluded, do eat dog. And so I guess this hunting pattern was not as prevalent there to support your thesis, well, perhaps. Yeah, there, there's, I, I think that may, there may have been a very ancient uh, conflict in Eurasia between a more group-oriented culture that was more geared around war than were these, you know, every man an alpha, you know, like simple household Cro-Magnon offshoots. Okay? Yeah. So they would tend, in that kind of a situation, they would tend to lose out. Okay, so I think that there's something, ha- I don't really know what all the history there was, I mean, I shouldn't say history, but because it, it's not written, okay? But this is something that, if there were real anthropologists, they'd be looking into this, I think. Well, the, the closest thing I've seen to that is there was um, there one of these Kurgans uh, in the steppe of Russia was sort of unearthed, and they found this specimen that they were calling the Ice Queen or the Ice Princess, something like that. Very, very old, um, sort of ancient Eurasian, far into the east of the Russian steppe. And they sequenced they sequenced her DNA and she was effectively mummified by the, by the permafrost. And she had, I mean, just from a look at her, you could see very clearly red hair, pale skin, uh, some sort of purple tattoos on her face and so forth. Sequenced her DNA and she is, you know, effectively a, uh, a, a 
basically almost a, you know, close to 100% ancient North Eurasian. Right. And Terum Basin mummies, right? What was that? That's the Terum Basin mummies. No, 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 no. This, this is far to the north of the Tarim Basin. The Tarim oh, Basin right. were, uh, act, this was, and far earlier. This, this woman would have had to have been at least seven, 8,000, maybe even 10,000 years ago. Wow. Far out into the steppe. And so there, there was, I think, evidence, there is some evidence that the precursors to a lot of the ancient North Eurasians <clears throat> that we got to know when they started incursion, their incursions into Europe, um, they were living out on the steppe for a very long time and more than likely had run-ins with some of these groups you're talking about. I think some of the furthest back we know of um, uh, coming out of the Altaic Mountains, the progenitors of the Turks, the Gok Turks uh, and their progenitors. I think that definitely at one point or another, you're right, there was some sort of clash between these people groups that were clearly the original sort of ancient North Eurasian uh, Caucasoids and the um, more Mongo uh, Mongoloid, more Oriental uh, groups, racial groups that effectively ended sort of that A&E rule over Eurasia. And there's been some hypotheses that the incursions into Europe by the ancient North Eurasians might have even been due to them being pushed out of Asia because it was around that time we started to see um, really the, the rise of the beginning of what came to be known as China, the beginning of the Mongol tribes and so forth. I think that at some point there was basically a, a sea change in Eurasia and it shifted towards these sort of hive mind mentality groups uh, and away from that old Cro-Magnon sort of nomad style. Right, and I think the Yamnaya um, were probably an, an attempt to retain a degree of the individualism of the of the sort of the proto-Europeans. Right. Proto-whites. Uh, but they, they had to do so within a war, warfare-oriented society. Yeah, so, and I, I think that, like, uh, if you're familiar with Steve Saylor, he's done a good amount of work reviewing... Um, uh, books by a lot of these modern uh, genetic scientists and anthropologists who are trying to sort of get into the deep uh, deep genetic history, especially of particularly of Europeans and Eurasia mm -hmm. in general. And he always notes that one of the things that is most defining about the ancient North Eurasians was that they were the first people to effectively come up with battle axes. Amongst their other sort of metallurgical advancements, they pioneered the battle axe, and they were effectively, uh, if you didn't want to call them the Kurgan culture, which is what they were referred to as by anthropologists for a long time, um, you could effectively call them the battle axe culture or just the wheel culture. They were the first people to really create wheeled vehicles and utilize them uh for transport, for logistics, for daily life, for warfare, and you know there, there was really? this real attempt. Yeah, there's actually a great book about this called just called "The Horse, the Wheel of the Language," and right. it is entirely about the the domestication of the horse, the development of metallurgy, wheel technology, ve really ve vehicular technology, and this was before the, Egypt. Or, I mean, people speculate oh, yeah, that the pyramids way, were built. Way, but, this is way yeah. before Egypt. Okay. This is very deep history hidden mm -hmm. in the Eurasian steppe. 
Right. The, the domestication of the horse is really important because I, I think that what happened there was you started with, as I said, these simple households with, you know, canine, you know, uh, co-evolved hunting groups. Right. And there was hunting going on of these non-domesticated or wild horses that was the first interaction. But then they became, they got to the point where they figured out another use for this game other than just eating them, right? But you still had this this sort of tradition where you, on the steps, they would do things like, you know, go along and they'd like start slicing meat off of the horse while they're out there milking it and, and developing a tolerance for lactose, et cetera. But uh, yeah, the, the the warrior culture of the the uh, eastern whites, you if you will, uh, is in contrast to the Western Europeans who did not get exposed to what of this group selection thing was going on in Europe. So they maintained their individualist culture. And I think this is the origin of what we, in, in the Norse mythology, is the 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 Asir versus Vanir cultures. You got the the, the sort of Asian, uh, you know, horse domesticated warrior culture that still is retaining its individualistic, uh, you know, sort of prowess. That that Kevin McDonald just wrote his like you know his magnum opus about the European individualism, okay, and and the Western liberal tradition which talks a lot about this stuff. But, you know, there was this adaptation to these group selection cultures in Asia that had not taken place in Western Europe, I mean, Northwestern Europe. And then you got the, the development of civilizations in, around the Mediterranean and the Levant and, and, and the Nile. And that started this sort of conflict that gave rise to the these incursions from the Western Europeans into the civilizations and infusing them with these heroic genes that then produced a renaissance once they were combined with a mercantile thoughtfulness. And so I think that there's there's a lot to be said for W.D. Hamilton's thesis and the domestication is something that we have to be concerned about if we don't have a, a eugenic system set up that's consistent with what makes us truly great and distinct. And if we have to, I mean, it seems to me that it's reasonable. What we need is we need a state of nature where we can maintain this reservoir of, like, really based individualism, which would make... Poor little Anne Rand shit her pants. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, ironically, if you a lot of the, well, some of the founding fathers, but uh, I should say, a huge chunk of the founding fathers of this country actually had similar notions. I mean, they were rooted in this uh, hermeneutic where they were trying to figure out how exactly do they inherit certain things from the Anglo-Saxon tradition, which is. A very fascinating blend of that sort of individualism and that heroism, but also in times of great uh, desperation, um, you know, incredible cooperativeness, and uh, obviously resulting in you know, the beginning of industry. Really, you know, there's an old joke that the English basically invented work. 
they you know through a, a, mix of, <laughs> a mix of this individualist tradition and the the capability for great things when they actually cooperate invented industry invented work in a way that no one had ever really thought of before we take it for granted now we i think that our, our historical viewpoint of labor is kind of informed by the world we live in but if you look at it honestly like if you read the worldly philosophers it's very clear that the that the English tradition and that sort of uh, blending of the two that you're talking about, uh, those two ancient traditions, really created something that uh, has been unique. And the founding fathers tried to look at that, and they tried to look at sort of um, natural enlightenment theory, and they tried to look at things that were much deeper, like the lives of the Greeks and the Romans. And I think that a lot of them, especially people like Jefferson, arrived at these stances where they thought, well— Every man unto himself, but in times of great need, we are all one. We have we share the same at the time, share the same blood, we share the same traditions, we share the same land, and you know we will come up with these uh, complicated and and these intricate ways of um, making sure that what we have for ourselves remains for ourselves. But we can always find a way to collectively defeat. A common enemy or collectively achieve something important like a culture that was sort of the i think where america in particular was headed because there was this grand opportunity to take all of the breadth of european political and economic and social history and say let's blend what worked and what didn't and start over yeah well, I, I wanted to try to get back i mean to, to the to the root culture of whites okay because if we lose sight of that, then we won't be able to understand, I think, why it is the American, quote, experiment, end quote, failed. And uh, can, can I ask you real quick, what, at what point do you sure. think it failed? Do you think it, it was always a failure or there was a turning point in America? I, I, I think that it really, really failed uh, at the Constitutional Convention. Okay, so that's pretty much from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, the what happened was, and I'll, I'll get back to this a little bit later about property money, but basically, uh, Shays' Rebellion hmm. was, that. what happened there was you had war veterans who had indeed answered the call and came together in times of strife, right? They had been out on their own little homesteads, the, you know, Jefferson's yeoman farmer doing their thing, but they, they walked away from that. And they, just like people are being asked to do today, walk away from their jobs, right, to make sacrifices for the greater good. Yep. And, uh, well, they didn't get income. Yet, they had debts to primarily the coastal merchants who had international debts to mm. Great Britain, right? So now the governors of the various colonies were calling forth the sheriffs at the end of the war to evict these guys from their homesteads to pay the merchants' foreign debts. Hmm. And so Shay's rebellion arose in that environment. Okay, well, at, least, at least they rebelled. Well, yeah, I'm, but I'm saying that, you know, this is, they, they were like, you're going to take our land from us? You're going to, like, we're gonna, now we're going to have to go and become wage slaves and quote work and quote <laughs> right instead of you know work for somebody else rather than working the land and being in touch with nature because these guys were like you know we had gone through some a number of generations of undomesticating people from europe mm-hmm. and, right so you know this this was 
when they started to rebel like this, Washington's reaction was, well, these guys, you know, we've got to whip them into shape. So now let's try to centralize power and make it so that we can, like, make it so that they can't have a rebellion anymore. And also, by the way, make it so we can have, you know, money to pay our soldiers because we obviously couldn't pay them enough to keep their lands from being confiscated. But it was a deal with the devil. Okay. I mean, that, that was basically what ended up happening, the centralized power and things went, went south from there. But the uh, what I was trying to get back to is, is th- this thing about, say, say in proprietarianism or, or any libertarian thing, you've got this presumption that of property rights. And if you don't go back into the deep, deep evolutionary history of individualism based upon this hmm. biological natural situation where you've got like a, a simple household out here gathering winter calories from meat, which is the only place you're going to be getting winter calories, right? And you got another simple household over here gathering winter calories, and they have kids. Eventually, you're going to run out of hunting land because there's only so much solar energy coming down, and the, the food chain loses calories from the sun, and then you end up having like only so many animals you can eat. So now you have two heads of households hunting each other. This is not Kodo Dulo, baby. This is what I try to get across to war veterans around here when I'm saying, how are we going to prepare for a collapse, which I've been doing with these guys for years, more so in the last year because I felt something coming, okay? Mm. And you know what I get from these guys? A lot of them? The older guys, okay? So I'm just going to go out and I'm going to, I mean, I'm gonna I, go I hunt. Talk. Yeah, exactly. Oh god, exactly. I, know. I, I I try to say, I say, look, if there's a collapse, we gotta get local currency going, okay? And we gotta get it going in such a way that we're that the economic rent, i.e., the network effect wealth, is going into the hands of the deputy reserves of the sheriff, okay? So that they're gonna protect property rights. Hmm. And they're going, oh, he's like, what is prop lo- lo- local currency? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we're going to just go out and hunt. I'd say, okay, have you looked at the census of deer, even though we have lots of harvest leavings in Iowa, and we have lots of deer because of that, okay? Yeah, I well, look- that, that's because nobody else is hunting. I mean, come on. I mean, it's obvious, right. you know. Right, So I So I try to explain to them, no, the skill that you need to acquire is how to hunt another man. Well, not, not, not to be rude, but why are you talking to grunts? I mean, I and, and, and I'm not a, I'm not a guy who disrespects the military. I have a lot of respect for these guys, but they're not there right. to think. And if they can't even process the fact that we all get basically industrialized food delivered to us through a hyper-efficient automated system. Now, if you strip that away, you're not going to be able to sustain yourself on hunting and gathering. If they can't get that why are you bothering? <laughs> That's I'm, pretty I'm bothering obvious, because you know? I'm bothering because these guys do have training. Right. Okay. Sure. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get them thinking of look what what these guys need is they need somebody that they will take orders from. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Once they've got somebody that they'll take orders from, they're okay. Until mm. they have that, they're out there going, "Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go hunting." Right. Mm-hmm. And so what I've been trying to do is, like, I, I joined a local fraternal organization that had a lot of these guys, and I just went there, and I was, like, doing dishes, and I was, you know. I, oh, you're probably a fish out of water, man. <laughs> I hope, hope it went okay, but. 
No, I'm, I'm just trying. I'm just. I went in there. The first thing I did is I went in there and said, "Look, hey, look, we have to. We have to have local currency. Can you guys help? I've talked to the sheriff. He thinks it would be a good idea. Blah blah blah. Right? And it's like, oh, <laughs> what? You know. And and so it's like, okay, fine. Uh, I'll start. You know, I'll just like become one of you guys and do dishes with you, and I'll try to earn your trust and respect. And I did. I got a okay. lot of respect from these guys. Cool. Okay. Uh, and some of them aren't like what I talked about. Good. Okay. I've actually got some of them in my church, and my church is setting up a local currency wow. where the only way that you get the property tax revenue, which is going to be collected by the church hmm. in time of collapse. Okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. Quite a church. The only, the, only, the only way you get it is if you're willing to sub, to, to a have already signed what about what amounts to a mixed martial arts contract mm -hmm. absolving others of doing you harm if you get like you know punched out right okay that includes me okay and i'm 66 years old and these guys are tough okay yeah but that's how much they respect me and i respect them okay because there's a point where you just have to say look if things fall apart and you can't trust the people that you're relying upon with your life, you'd better like scramble real fast for some kind of authority structure, and it's probably not going to be the one you want. Right. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, that that's kind of going through, I think, a lot of people's minds right now. Um, right. I mean, I, I sort of live in a smallish town, and it's getting weird. I People, like, the things are shutting down. People don't know where to go for things. People are just trying to rely upon themselves, but it's not really practical long term. You have to work together, but un under what framework? And I think that's right. the big debate. People are like, "Well, we got to make changes." I'm like, "Well, okay, yeah, that that's a constant in the universe of change, right? Time is basically change." But the um, the question is, what change and under what authority? Who's going to have it? I mean, it's it's going to be interesting. I've I right. don't know. And one of the things that, that, that we are addicted to is money. We have to have money because well, we are not. I don't think not... that's going away. I mean, not to be you know blunt, but that, that's that been a historical well, constant as well, right. it would seem. Right. Right. That, that's, that's why I'm working on property money. That's okay. why, you know, set that. That's, that's why on, gen, okay. on January 21st, I decided I had to write out my, you know, description of the theory of property money. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... You know, this goes clear back to the stuff I was doing when I was recognizing the capital market failures when I, you know, privatized lodge services. Okay. Yeah. And it goes back to my understanding about the state of nature, where before you get to the point where we can even talk about proprietarianism or libertarians or whatever, right, you have to start talking about, like, there's a man in nature without anybody else around. And why is it that he should respect an agreement between two other men over who owns what? Right? Well, I mean, I, if if you're not asking rhetorically, I, I think it's because well, then I, you I, then you have an incentive to invest. If you don't, then you know why bother building something if it's going to get stolen from you? That's always right. been my answer. Right. That that's that's one answer. I mean, another answer might be that well, one of the things you can do is you come in here. And participate in whatever our our selection regime is, our genetic selection regime is, okay. And we will, as a group of based individualists, 
come together when we are threatened. You follow me? I mean, we just talked about this, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, under well, I mean, to, to ask a practical question, how do you define when we're under threat? Because I mean, is it is it the pandemic? Is it illegal immigrants? I mean, is it uh, something really obvious where there's literally guys waving uh, battle axes at you coming down the road? Who decides that? And is it a group decision? I mean, obviously, yeah, the, in practice, the, the way this is that, kind yeah, of the Anglo-Saxons had had mm-hmm. a tradition about that. I mean, basically, they would they would elect a king, right? Right. And you know, why would they? You know, under what circumstances would they elect a king? Well, they had had you know these gatherings, and they'd just like be talking about stuff, and somebody get up and say, you know, I think that we've got an enemy, mm-hmm. and we got to go slay that dragon over there, or whatever, right? And then people say, yeah. Oh, whatever. And sometimes it would, you know, be banging their shields together and go, yeah, 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 let's do that, right? And you have, I mean, this is something that was recognized about Western Europeans, which is that they did not have permanent kings; they had elected kings, and, and sort of made them kind of a unique culture. And that that the reason that they elected the kings was because the, well, they didn't have a king before they elected them. Oh, do you, they, do you mean by the nobility, not by the everybody? Is that what you mean? Yeah, the nobility. Now, okay, now we're let's talk about nobility. You know, and and you know, the, the key word here is sovereignty. And like, Kurt likes to use the word sovereignty a lot. Um, I've got a real clear definition of sovereignty in my state of nature thing on sortocracy, and it's part of my the 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 ecclesiastical rules of my of my congregation, okay, that I adopted. And and basically, it is if you are willing to subject yourself to being challenged to a mutual hunt in nature then you are a sovereign. If you accept the shield of a sovereign, you are not sovereign. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And sovereigns are individuals, and you accept the shield of a sovereign individual. And if that sovereign individual gets killed in a mutual hunt or whatever, then you better find another sovereign to shield you. Now, this gets back to the idea of the ultimate ex- exile is really the prison, right? Hmm. In other words, you you go to think think about like the rules that should govern a a prison. Well, <laughs> it should we yeah. have okay. Well, yeah, I'm saying you That's know, a big question. You, yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, you separate, you take these these undomesticated people and you separate them from civilization. Mm-hmm. Up to that point, it's all vote with your feet, and so everybody has like freedom of choice about the kind of social theory under which they want to live, and that gives people mutual consent to the social experiments under which they're living, and then you get, as a result of that, data if you want to have social science. Okay, But let's say somebody doesn't fit anywhere. Well, now you have to be subjected to these rules that have to do with individual sovereignty, not the kind of individual sovereignty that libertarians or Kurt Doodle talks about, the kind of individual sovereignty where if Kurt was in this situation, he could be challenged by me. And let's talk about King of the Hill now. Hmm. Well, is this just gladiatorial combat? Or no, is it on other terms? Nature. It's, that, it's what selected us. It's mutual hunt in nature. It's not, it's not, you know, swords or pistols at paces or, yeah. you know, duelo or gladiator. It's like we're out, you know, you have a natural a natural environment Okay. from opposite sides. You have a 10-inch blade and 50 feet of strong cordage, 
and that's it. You remind me of the guy, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you remind me of this guy who challenged his uh, ex-wife to a duel or something, or his, like, <laughs> you hear about that, Hans? He told the judge, like, he wants to have a samurai sword <laughs> and the, he, in, in lieu of a trial or some kind of hearing. I don't know, but... Well, you, yeah, I mean, well, you, do, it, you do it as a last resort, obviously. Okay, okay. <laughs> But the thing I is, mean, it's better than like paying alimony for the rest of your life. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Whoever yeah, wins, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, you're talking about girl. family courts. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, family courts are, not, are a complete nightmare. That That's oh, one of the terrible. things. Yeah. And and so it's like, okay, well, I want to challenge the judge to a duel, right? <laughs> but no, I, the point is that this is one of the things I think happened to us is that when the theocracies came through and started pulling their their horseshit about you know Jesus was this individual the ultimate individual of integrity that's that got crucified by the group, <laughs> um, that right, that, right. that you know they, they what they, the first thing they do is they start to redefine the way in which you engage in trial by combat, so that it's dysgenic. And then oh, you can get interesting. The, so uh, I, I'm not familiar with this. What this happened? Like people? Yeah. Were, okay. Yeah. I mean, you. you I mean, dueling what? was a big part of the American tradition well into the 19th century. It yeah. How do of, you make it dysgenic, though? Like that's the part I'm not. So just like I mean, you could argue guns are dysgenic because you could be like this fat slob who shoots a. Well, no. At I mean, dueling. Like, not necessarily. I mean, you have to. Dueling re- revolves around being smart being you know having a good amount of hand-eye coordination this is what i'm trying to say is that that a mutual hunt in nature is not the same as any of the things that you guys have heard about well this this, yeah this this sort of like captain kirk is on some planet against the monster and he's got to figure out what to do i I think that's yeah that's 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 like the closest thing that anybody is you know portrayed in the popular you know uh, popular motion picture genres right or even i think most fiction but the point is that we have a we have an evolutionary history that produced us and if we aren't careful we're going to lose us yeah Okay, that's interesting. So your your goal, your primary goal, is to create a eugenic system, an, a, a, an optimal one, in your view. Obviously. Yeah, I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is that we we have this individual, we have this thing, this culture of individual integrity behind us, going back tens of thousands of years, mm-hmm. and that's why we are the way we are. That's That's what distinguishes us from all others, and why we are morally superior to other races. Why would you argue that morally superior? We are morally superior to other races because if you think about it, two men ganging up on a single man. Yeah. Well, I think we all have an image of that coming. I mean, in grade school, I saw that and it was bullshit. But yeah, no, I I agree. And and you know know why that's instinctively bullshit? Because we have 600 million years of creative evolution Mm. that wasn't about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you know, you have this explode, this Cambrian explosion mm-hmm. that produced the, you know, our nervous systems and our senses and and you know all kinds of other things that would not have occurred without male intersexual selection. You know, and that was not. And if you get into things where you start start forming gangs like we had, you know, in the primate line, it started happening. Yeah. 
at the uh, chimpanzee human last common ancestor about right. six million, eight million years ago. Right. Okay. So yeah. you're you're against war then? Because like logically, that's like the biggest gang up, right? Yeah, I mean, well, what that's that's why you come to you know, the individuals that are out there agreeing to this individual selection regime hmm. have something in common. They are all in the creative process that says, "May the best win," and that is the will of God. Hmm. And if anybody comes in and interrupts that creative process that goes back six hundred million years, it's like you know the defining you know a, a defining attribute of sex. So is your church Christian? Because this is not a very Christian principle. I'm not judging you, but it's just Christ seems to be about everybody, you know, is important regardless if they're a cripple yeah. or not and that well, sort of thing. So I'll, I'll, I'll just put it like this. I, I think that something happened with, with the story of Christ. Okay. That uh, so, something happened around that time where there was a, a, an interaction between the Germanics and the Roman Empire and the Levant, yeah, the mercantile cultures of the Levant, where Germanic mercenaries were being taken as, as soldiers by the Roman Empire. Right. There was this interaction between this culture of individual integrity that was not really quite domesticated and some of these, like, merchants. And <laughs> there was something happening with the, with the Greeks, the Hellenistic sort of culture hmm. that was uh, trying to remember its golden age with the Dorian invasions and the Spartans and stuff like that. Yeah. And they had the Hellenistic Jews that were running around and it was all this confusion about, about the stuff. And I think that there may have been something that, that happened that was real where somebody started to actually preach something about the culture of individual integrity in that environment and relating more directly to the nature that started really Awakening a lot of the the you know, the archetypes, and they had they had to contain it with this story. Is what I think happened, and I think they succeeded. I mean that that in fact invaded Northern Europe and and eventually got us all to give up our culture of individual integrity. How do you think Christianity spread? What what was how, the? I mean, it's a big it question. I mean, aside from Constantine sort of making it the the empire's religion what was the what were the incentives at play i've always wondered this about it going to scandinavia for example where it really was completely remote um right well that was after the church had consolidated i mean that was an organization going there with missionaries crushing them <laughs> please convert yeah. whereas it, you know i mean when it was spreading around the roman empire it was more focused, I think, originally around uh, really Greeks. Greeks were very quickly uh, inculcated into this. So were Macedonians, the old Macedonians, not the current uh, Bulgars who are claiming to be them. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, those are the people that originally kind of uh, inculcated into their culture. And I think that it spread throughout the populace mostly because. Uh, it promised salvation for the poor, and yeah. there were all these. There, there, there were a lot of incentives to believe in Christianity because it was going to save you from your current predicament. But also the 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 accounts, I think, of Roman soldiers sort of being in awe of Christ's miracles and in the Roman centurions, you know, experiencing Christ's aura and all this stuff. 
it had this effect on Roman culture where eventually a lot of people began to think, well, even if the soldiers are, you know, have seen it with their own eyes and, and have come to understand it, then there must be some truth to it. There, hmm. there must be some miracle here. So it was really, yeah, I, it's sort I of like modern truth. Sorry, go ahead, James. I need to, I need to correct something I said. Well, uh, we have to be careful about my church, okay? I have, my the, the fair church is set up as a number of ecclesia, each of which has an ecclesiastical law, which is sort of like the, the dark enlightenment guy you were talking, Moldberg or whatever he's got in it. Moldberg. You've, yeah, yeah you, you've, you've got essentially a, 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 a set of laws, ecclesiastical laws, that govern a, an ecclesium. And they can be anything. You know, and anything you want, and but the thing is that you can't in this church. You cannot keep people from leaving an ecclesium, just as you can't keep prisons under sortocracy, right? Okay, you got it. Okay, so you don't have any cults. Okay, right? good. Yeah, so it's and, Scientology is famous for infamous for doing this right. to its members. They'll, they'll, right. Yeah. So that so so that's that's one of the rules of the church. But my ecclesium has these these detailed rules about the way in which you resolve disputes in nature. My ecclesium is not what you would call a normal Christian quote unquote ecclesium. Okay, they're, 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 the the ecclesiastical rules. I think I sent them to you in a link about the Burkana ecclesium. Okay, okay. they have they have these rules in there about how you how you resolve disputes, how how you define you know. There's like seven or actually there's nine rules. For some of which are basically non proper non property right things, the and you, it's very very austere. Okay, and anybody who wants to join the fair church has to set up something so that they describe what their ecclesiastical laws are, so that any adult can understand them in a single document. Now this might be thought of as you know everybody can have their own like little doctrine or whatever, but you have to agree with the other ecclesia that you will fight any entity outside that interferes with making it practical for people to get territory upon which to live their beliefs. That's, okay. I mean, you could, you could agree to that in, in theory, but in practice, that sounds very difficult to resolve when you decide to go to fight. Right. And, and the thing is that if you try to do, as Kurt's trying to do, set up a judicial structure in advance, as opposed to what happened with the, the, with the Treaty of Westphalia. Yeah. Right? I mean, the Treaty of Westphalia was essentially this thing where you had all these principalities going like, you know, we're not going to worship the way the Catholic Church says we're going to worship. Mm. And then 25% of the, of the European population dies in, a, in, in these wars. The, first the Peace of Augsburg, then the, Peace, the Treaty of Westphalia, right? And the basic idea was that under the, the principle of his region, his religion, people could migrate to a principality that practiced according to their individual beliefs. So you had assertive migration to territories that had their own ways of worshiping. Now, the thing about the social science and science in general is this, this mistake that any, the idea that, that, that we're scientific creatures is just a mistake. Okay. Uh, we have 
every decision that we make is a is an act, if not leap of faith, because we have imperfect uh, knowledge. Yeah. You know? Right. Okay. And so the whole thing about social science, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of a, an attempt, but yeah, no right. question. <laughs> And you know this this goes back to the to the foundation of the Royal Society, where like it was you know the year sixteen sixty six was coming up, and everybody thought like it was the end of the world, and people were running around getting crazy, right? And so they they were trying to figure out how to deal with this, and so they they made the split between the 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 Treaty of Westphalia, which did not distinguish between secular and and uh, and, and religious authority, but did allow there to be different ecclesia, if you will in different principalities. And then what they did in England with the Royal Society is they said, okay, well, we've got to get control of all this craziness. So what we're going to do is we're going to separate the secular from the religious authority by this, this hardcore empiricism. And then, then what that gives rise to all the things that people talk about as being like a failure of, of Locke, Lockean individualism and all the rest of that stuff, right? Uh, the modernism and, and enlighten you know the bad portions of enlightenment and stuff like that and people just have to get over that okay i mean you know it's like yeah we're we're, we're creatures of faith everything we do is, is an act of faith in some sense and so now we have to accept each other as creatures of faith and also accept that we're all in the process of creating hmm. in our acts of faith and now how how do we best to participate in that. And I'm saying, well, if we don't want to just go to, to Jim's prison out in nature, okay, uh. if we want to have a civil society, what we need to do is we need to have some rules about allocation of territory and making it so that individuals can escape from cults and find their moral community, which Kevin McDonald writes about as being one of the key attributes of the European form of individualism individuals of European heritage tend to be very strong about their morals and about adherence to the moral community standards. And if you get control of that, you can really mess them up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's no no question. And, and I don't know that, that, that Kevin really got into, you know, the reason why the moral community thing was so deeply ingrained in us, but I did in race, gender, and front of the frontier, which is that if you've got a situation in an unnatural environment, like the guy, you know, I talked about earlier that, that, you know, teaches his son how to like strike two rocks together and make a blade. Yeah. Right. That is a mean, let's say that's a, that's a teaching about how to relate to nature. If you, if you get into a, a difficult environment to survive in, you've got a lot of rules you have to follow. And maybe you don't know how to, you know, why they work, but you know you were taught them. And if you're in any kind of society in that environment, okay, there's going to be a certain set of agreed upon standards of behavior that have to do with keeping each other from killing each other over trivia or dying because you started a forest fire. Who knows what the rules might have been. But you have these things, and they're rules that are adopted once they're imprinted at the same level as instinct. Hmm. So, and so now, it's like, if you find somebody violating it, it's like, man, oh man, I don't know, you know what you think you're doing, but you're not supposed to do that. And they go, why? It's like, 
you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Because that, that's one of the things that made us made it so that we could make it in in these northern environments. Okay, I have, I have a couple practical questions. I'm not trying to punch holes sure. in this, but it, it's just I'm curious how this would work. So how how realistically do you th- you've, how large do you think this would scale? Uh, I think we mentioned game theory uh, at least once, I think, before. And I think the reason empires or even countries exist is because the threat of a group taking you over is such that you need to have your own group to a sufficient size to defend yourself. And an example of that is having a draft where people don't necessarily agree with the morals of the the war per se, but it's kind of required for the entity as a whole to do that because if they didn't, they would get conquered. Um, And I think that's a historical thread throughout history where you just have these small groups getting swallowed up by larger groups. So how, how big could this realistically get without people sort of disagreeing with each other and then splitting off into their own little micro groups and then just being vulnerable to attack by this gigantic Stalinist machine roller, uh, or steamroller that comes over and, and crushes them because they, they don't practice these, uh, these rights of uh, free association and whatnot. Right, and that that's probably what happened to, to the Yamnaya culture when they they had to adapt to the the group cultures of, of the Asia, right? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, and you know there was that was an adaptation to that, and they they came up with this this sort of warrior ethos and, and ways of making it so that people could arise rise within their their sort of warrior culture that was nevertheless individualistic, and and in a in a kind of a market sense. I'm not saying that's the proper way to do it in the current environments, especially given the fact that, you know, we've got so many people that, that would just want to become warlords and, and you know, turn things into Somalia, given, given the way things are right now. Hmm. Uh, but uh, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that, you know, a, the area of, of a circle is like the square of its circumference Ra- radius oh well, yeah diameter radius circumference okay yeah diameter circumference are all proportional to each other sure okay? sure the area is proportional to the square of the circumference right so now okay. when you talk about a border you have to invest in their circumference of the area so there's an economy of scale yes right yes okay mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that that you know the wealthy like to exploit when they start you know turning loose on us <laughs> individuals who aren't wealthy mm. outside of gated communities all these like all this diversity mm-hmm. so now we have like you know they can afford to have a walled you know mansion and we and, and guards with guns and they don't have to personally have you know guns because yeah. they got guards with guns well <laughs> we're living on their plantation except right, we can't go right. into their house and right. their slaves can not. wander over and steal, you know, our television. And it's like, uh, okay guys, this sucks. You know, right. I'm tired and, of this. And one of the, one of the techniques of dealing with, with an epidemic, like, like a pandemic. In fact, it was done at Princeton university in 1918 to 1920. It's called protective sequestration. Essentially it's, it's what people sometimes mistakenly call quarantine. no, You've got an area that's pure inside, and you keep all the impurity out. Oh, I see. It's the opposite of it's like it's exclusion of uh, invaders. Right. Yeah. Right. 
And you can you can find quarantine has 160 million hits. Protective sequestration has under 10,000 hits. And it worked for Princeton in the pandemic. Princeton he, University? Yeah, Princeton University. They did not lose a single person. Ah, uh, okay. okay. And they use protective sequestration. In fact, you go to their go to the Princeton's website that talks about how they got through it. And it's like, well, you know, one of the things was they had a military culture. It's like, you know, it was a, it was a sort of kind of a military school for officers. Uh, but they used protective sequestration. Now, here in my small town in the Midwest, we would not be permitted by the people who have gated communities to set our small town up as a protective sequestration gated community. Hmm. Okay. And because they, they hire illegals or something or no, I'm I, what I'm saying is that you, you go to any, any incorporated town anywhere and there are laws based upon the 14th amendments, misinterpretations by the Supreme court that basically make it so that you can't be exclusive. Yeah. Okay. You can't keep blacks out, for example, if you have some reason to keep blacks out, which some people do, okay? Now, maybe they're mistaken about their beliefs, but that's the whole point about freedom of religion as yeah. opposed to social science. Yeah, we, we don't disagree with you on this. Um, well, I just I just always come back to the how question. I mean, right. The, the I what, I think you've explained pretty well, but... I was, yeah, I was getting to that about, about the squared law, okay? okay. There's okay. an economy of scale that says... You want to maximize the area that's protected by your perimeter because that's the, that's economics. Okay. You follow? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it depends on now, the cost now, and the benefits. But yeah, so, sure. So, yeah. And then, then beyond that, you're probably going to have things where a larger circle is going to encompass smaller ones sure. that are going to inherit the restrictions of the larger circle just the way it should work for the federal government and the states, where yes. the states will inherit some restrictions, you know, from the federal government, but the federal government is least restrictive, yes. and the states have the ability to be most restrictive, yeah. okay? Now, in that kind of situation, you're going to expect there are going to be things like, well, we're going to have this rule or that rule or the other rule that's going to make it so that we can maintain whatever kind of boundaries we want to, to protect our territory, and if you're going to be part of this thing, you have to uh, abide by our procedure for declarations of war hmm. that's fine you're, you're you're perfectly you know it's just fine to do that and then you just have like subordinate body bodies politic mm -hmm. now ultimately you have you get back to the thing well you know what if you know you can't get these two large bodies politic to agree and it's like well you know you, then you have it out <laughs> and you know sorry that's just the way it is what if, so, what if, uh, uh, Hans, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, so James, do you see the general political economy of maybe the West in general is too broad, but at least the United States sort of going in this direction, sort of slowly decentralizing and yeah. trying to approach a, a more sort of local equilibrium as... I mean, is globalism canceled, as Adam Torvich said? <laughs> and nationalism right. even is canceled? I mean... At what point does the uh, USA turn into the USSA? I mean, it already is, but like, when does it fall apart, in other words? Well, I'm not so much fall apart, but I think, you know, purposefully start to break down into more manageable units and try and well, approach that's, that's the, local what, problems. That's the optimistic outcome, but we don't know how this is going to shake out. 
nobody knows. I mean, we can hope and plan and try, but you know, we got to prepare for several contingencies at least I would say, but James, please, uh, your thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that what's been going on is that the, the founding population of the United States, uh, just like, you know, all technologists were, were more geared toward dealing with nature than with people. Like, <laughs> yes. And, and just like males are, gen, you know, tend to be more thing oriented than, than people oriented, which right. is like, you know, had this big brouhaha at Google cause some guy, you know, wrote oh, about geez. that research. Right? That was a mess. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah. So no, I, I think that, that we're facing a situation where the, the foundation of the civilization here, uh, having been laid by us, and it having been turned against us is like the creation turning against the creator. We are their God. Understand? We can kill them. And it's very simple to do it. Okay? So they've got to start, you know, they've got to have their come to Jesus time. And them try to take guns away from us? Well... Even if they succeed in taking guns away from, them. I mean, you know, they had this thing going on with uh, it was a John Mark mm-hmm. this thing about war two who will win, right? And he yeah. went down all blah blah blah, right? Right. But I think he's know, too sanguine on it. I just yeah. Yeah, I understand. I understand. But you know, bottom line is that you get a situation in which, in fact, I was. This goes back a, a while. I've been trying to get people to talk about synchronization. Uh, on any basis whatsoever, doing anything, get sure. like going and say, okay, well, we're all going to synchronize and all we're going to do is say Gieselforp on Twitter at the same time. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's better okay. than nothing. But if you, but if you synchronize on, on something, then you are in a position to overwhelm the capacity of any infrastructure you choose. Okay. Like, Shooting down, like, 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 for example, when they try to pass gun legislation, you know, back in the old, you know, decades ago, is like the National Rifle Association was shut down the switchboards in Washington, D.C. Right. That was famous, right? Right. Well, they were overwhelming the peak capacity of that infrastructure. Okay. Okay. All you have to do is get sufficient numbers of people to agree that they're going to synchronize. Yeah. And once you've got that, then... If they try anything, there are a variety of things you can do with synchronization. And if you do things with synchronization, you can take down infrastructure in such a way that the, that the recovery infrastructure is taken down along with it. And that's, in fact, to some extent, what's happening right now with this pandemic. It was a synchronized takedown. Okay, And you don't have the ability of various components of the, of the infrastructure to come to the rescue of other components. It's not as bad as it would be in an EMP pulse, for example. Okay, what I'm trying to get at is that you don't want to mess with the people that created the foundation of your civilization, because they'll just tear it down because they can make it and build it back up again, and you can't. Parasites. I've heard this argument before, and I guess the reason I'm less than optimistic on it is I've heard it for a while, and I haven't seen anything. I guess that's really what I think goads on the uh, coalition of the uh, disenfranchised to continue their war against the uh, the heritage Americans, so to speak. And it's like, I, and then I hear these white guys saying, "Oh, well, you know, 
white white people are nice until they're not and then cue you know hitler rolling across the russian steppe but yeah that was 80 years ago i mean yeah and that failed by the way no shit no (laughs) shit no it failed hard it failed really hard the reason it failed is because of the because the americans came in well, yeah, right. we, we don't disagree, sense. but it just okay, it that, failed that's in the us. loss. Yeah. Now, now, the thing is that, you know, we had our moral sensibilities taken over, yeah. okay? And then along came the internet, and just like I said back in 82, <laughs> you're going to have this, you know, the Heritage Americans are going to find each other. And that was why, what was so horrifying to people when Trump won. It wasn't Trump. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, the, the Democrats shit there. You know what? I mean, it was. Uh, oh yeah, no, everybody no. knew. Well, <laughs> well, you can the, the immediate aftermath. They were like, "This is a white lash." This, yeah. this, that was uh, what's his name, Van Jones. This is a white lash. Yeah, that's funny. And what you saw <laughs> in the uh, the election turnout was that you know college educated whites, non college educated whites, women, men of almost all age groups, demographics. Uh, across the board, stuck together as a block, in majority for Donald Trump. You know, it was the first time that it happened in a long time for a Republican candidate. Yeah. Uh, it, it was incredible, and so that you know, I think you're right that there was this element of everyone was finding each other via the internet and using the internet to build this coalition that manifested in real life. And you right. know, they've they've completely destroyed that coalition. By the way, those networks are. I, you know, very much gone. Well, they've done a good job. Let's say that but they haven't completely done it, but uh, yeah, they they're aware of it uh, for the most part now. Whereas I think they may have been slightly aware and they just didn't take it seriously. But now it is it is kind of a top top. Of, I mean, the FBI just came out a couple months ago and said white nationalists is at their top of their concern list. Um, yeah, but, well, their their real concern should be about individualists, and I don't mean libertarians. And I don't mean libertarians. Oh, I mean like lone wolves. Like, <laughs> you mean, like, I mean, you don't, you don't have to get about, into Fed Post territory. About people, but what do you mean? Yeah, if you you got individualists that actually say, you know, we believe in individualism, not this this you know Austrian school of economics shit that was. I, I suspect I would suspect it was funded by a Maoist think tank. By quite honestly, okay. Uh, you know, it's like. Well, I mean, you know, seriously, it's like what, what was the what was the end result of the Austrian School of Economics? It's like chaos. Cens- I don't know. It was it was censorship by by private monopolies. Is that you know taking our rights again away in the private sector I see. by censorship okay. of wealth? Okay, I mean, they say well, you can't tax wealth because that's communism. And meanwhile, they let this taxation of activity go. Well, on. it's technically it's socialism. Communism is there is no private property to be taxed. Right. Well, honestly, the the uh, the greatest achievement that Austrian economics ever had was the uh, a preeminent Austrian economist actually became chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, and then he yes. proceeded to crash the American economy uh, almost permanently into the ground. I okay, so, I mean. I mean that that was the shining achievement of. I mean, they it's actually not just won. him. Come like, on, the whole system they, they was achieved, before they he achieved got there. the height, the greatest heights of power, chairman of the Fed, yeah. and they did the worst possible things with uh, it. I think okay, <laughs> that, that's probably a, its own show, Alan Greenspan. Yeah, but. Well, I'm, I'm, I, you know, my my point is that I think that that what happened when Trump got elected and everybody went completely crazy is that they they started realizing mm-hmm. at a very deep level that they were guilty of a sin against God. 
and God was coming. You really think they felt like they were felt guilty though? I, I didn't get that impression. I think no, they no, just... uh, when, I, when I'm talking about guilt, I mean, okay, I'll put it like this: if if you know that you're doomed because you have betrayed that which created you, yeah, okay, you go crazy. They got scared that they had sinned. And, and we created them. They would not exist were it not for us. And know, we could, but, but knowing that is that is that enough? I mean, you know, I I think you you don't have to answer that. But it's um, a lot of well, us. I'm, agree. I'm just saying that they're they're, they're crazy. Okay, yeah. so so they're they're going to continue to do crazier and crazier things. Okay, now agreed. If people don't. You know, like I said, if the pioneer Americans who laid the foundation don't realize what that foundation is really made of, yeah. okay, and it's not made of the Constitution, <laughs> made of the people, okay, yeah, and they have to, they also have to understand what the people are made of and how they came into existence, okay, and why it is that this toxic individualism that people keep on complaining about isn't the individual evolutionary entity that I'm talking about, which goes back into deep evolutionary history. And I believe strongly has a spiritual component that is at the heart of what people see as being morality. And that's why I say we are morally superior. Hmm. Okay. And if you can tap into that moral superiority that has resonance with all people, because we're all descended from that deep history of evolution. And just, that, that's one of the reasons why Jews keep on doing this horseshit in movies where they always ended up with a mano-mano fight that's not, that's not eugenic. Okay? Because they know that they're tapping into that. Okay? It's like, may the best win. There's, there's, there's nobility in that phrase. You're willing to sacrifice yourself for the furtherance of creation in a fair contest. Mm-hmm. You have to decide what the fair contest is, mm-hmm. but we're all participating in this creation, in this 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 process of creation, and are using our agency in that way is what we are really about. And this is gets into my you know my my church, which is we're trying to make room for people to go ahead and live out their their sort of theories about their reason for living and how they're going to make things better for future generations by being more creative even if it means that the mutant individual crowns that crowds out the entire rest of the, of, of civilization the species okay we all sacrifice ourselves ultimately to mutations that come through and we are at a deep level and attuned with that at a, at a deeper level than than i think most of us are willing to recognize because we're too suck too caught up in this materialism hmm. So, <laughs> I guess if your if your goal is to create, uh, let's just call it a a healthy European civilization. Um, I mean, what do you think the greatest threat is right now? And on practical terms, what is the the mission at the moment? Well, in terms of the most urgent threat. Sure, I mean, you, I mean prioritize right, you know, top to bottom. Well, I mean. The most urgent threat is you got guys out there that are going to find that the sheriff is coming in and saying, you're out of here because you didn't pay your mortgage or your rent, right? Okay. And 
what I'm trying to do with property money is set something up where you just take your cell phone and you type in one number from your contact list. That's an accounting system. And you type another number in. And so you have a message going to two people. I mean, one's not a person. And it just says, you know, some amount and maybe you know, a space and then just like a, a, a note on what it's about. And you send it. And then that goes in to a computer system and to the person that you're paying money to. And the computer system has the county recorder's database. The county recorder has all the properties, right? All the land titles and stuff like that. And they have assessments from the county. And then the amount that you sent to this other person gets routed automatically into a escrowed bid for one of the properties that already has an assessed value. And that automatic transfer to an escrowed bid establishes the liquidation value of that property. So every property has an escrowed bid associated with it, and that's its liquidation value, and that's the tax basis and the tax is taken out of any money that's not in an escrowed bid, because maybe you, you, there will be a point where you've got people with their own accounts and they, they don't have their money in an escrowed bid. And so now you have demurrage that's taken out on a periodic basis, on a, on a continuous basis. So you want to spend your money because it's got a storage cost associated with it, just like gold would. Okay, So you're spending your money, and the money that is taken in by the demurrage fees, which is like the equivalent of property tax, goes out evenly to all of the local, let's say, laws, law enforcement. Okay, and in my ecclesium, it's a sovereign. Okay, but I can relax that and say, fine, if you want to do something else to select the people who are going to be receiving the tax revenue from the property owners. Go ahead and set up whatever kind of criteria you want. Maybe you just have this, the sheriff that you elect select who his deputy reserves are. That's fine. You know, not everybody has to be as radical as I am about trying to keep out some, you know, maybe Mexican that shows up in, in rural Iowa that says, I'm a sovereign too, so give me some of that money, sheriff. And if you don't let me in on your, your deputy reserves, I'm going to go get the state of Iowa's attorney general and, and use the 14th amendment against you. You know what I'm saying? Because this whole thing about gene flow over the borders doesn't happen if you have individual combat. <laughs> sure. Uh, gene, uh, the gene flow is controlled by the individual male. So, and you're not, you know, you're not coming over here. You funny looking guy. You know? Your, your uh, original example was the um, guy not being able to pay his mortgage. And so, right. um, how does that connect to the property money uh, where you're talking about basically like property taxes, I would, I would say. Right. Okay. Well, there, there's two different ways to look at it. One is you've got a local landlord that's charging somebody rent, right? Okay. And so you got some guy that in the current situation can't go to a young girl and say, let's start a family because he doesn't have the, the security. Mm -hmm. But if he's one of these sovereigns or if he's like in a deputy reserve in a situation where they're getting the, the rent or they're, they're getting the, the tax revenue, 
that guy can go to that girl and say, look, let's have a kid because I am one of the sovereigns or I'm one of the deputy reserves. And so I have this economic rent stream coming in yeah. to pay for my rent. Okay. And by the way, the landlord's going to accept it. You know why? Because that's how he pays his rent. That's how he pays his taxes. Because if he doesn't pay his taxes, then we're not going to protect okay. his property. So you're, you're giving, uh, I mean, forgive the term, but it's like a sinecure to guys in your, in your group to be, I don't know, a knight or something, something like that. Yeah, no, they, they are the, they're the aristocracy. Okay. Okay. I mean, the aristocracy collects the economic rent from the peasants. Okay. Okay. So some guys unemployed, you give them a, you give them a pistol and deputize them. Is that? No, well, but you're talking about what I do? <laughs> well, no, no, no. Just ideally, like I'm, I'm curious how this plays out in your mind. I mean, no, I don't I expect do, you to have everything. Is not, I know. I told you what I do. Ideally, I'm doing it. Okay. okay. Let's talk about people who can't get their wrap their heads around the origin of European moral superiority. Because hmm. there's lots of people like that, right? Sure, of course. Everybody. You probably, you guys maybe even who knows. Well, I'm just saying. Okay, so you got some, you got some county someplace, and you got a sheriff that's being told by the central authorities to, you know, or I shouldn't say central authorities. You got like some, some financial institution that holds a mortgage-backed security, and they've just gotten bailed out, and so they want to be able to like take this house away from this young couple. So they call up the sheriff, the other judge. Say, go kick them out so we can have somebody in there that, you know, is going to be able to get some of our Federal Reserve dollars or whatever, right? Now, if they actually come through with these these checks out of Washington, D.C., on, on an ongoing basis, reliably, then maybe they can avoid this situation because then maybe they can pay. But what if they can't? What if, they, what if right now the Democrats are insisting on, for example— Oh well, we're not we're not going to provide you know any of this this like big cash outflows unless there are guarantees on boards of directors that have certain diversity quotas, which is what they're doing right now. Okay, so they're blocking the the flow out of the federal government into the pockets of people and making it so that they're going to be called up. the The sheriffs are going to be called up to go and evict people. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Now the question is, well, you know, is the sheriff going to do this? Is the sheriff going to start in this environment? Is the sheriff going to go out there when, you know, like guys around here are like, you know, giving each other like a hundred shotgun, you know, 12 gauge shotgun shells as a present just to like show that we're like, you know, friendly as things are falling apart. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know. It's an an open question. I think actually on a lot of people's minds right now about uh, making, making rent and whatnot. Right. Right. So, so the sheriff, the sheriff is going to be between the rock and a hard place because he doesn't have the money to go out and hire deputy reserves to be able to like go and do the bidding of the bailed out financial companies. Uh huh. So how does he recruit law enforcement manpower when there's going to be more and more need for it? Well, traditionally, it was loot and booty. I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm asking. Is this kind of how you would view it? Or do these guys... Like, I guess what, what I'm coming down on is you got a guy who cannot survive in the... I mean, today it's hyper-competitive globalism, but... 
for whatever it is, at, at whatever scale you want, there's going to be people who just can't make it. Now, what what I'm guessing, uh, I'm trying to figure out is how does your system either, it seems like you're trying to do a couple of things. Like one, you're trying to be eugenic, which in my mind would be, well, if somebody can't make it, they're out. But on the other hand, it sounds like you're you're trying to give a guy who maybe is today unfairly not able to make it, but give him a shot at actually making it in a fair way. But what I'm struggling with is trying to understand how in your system it would be any different, really. Like, okay, a guy who can't get off the couch ever and go to work, is that going to be any different under your system? It seems like he's still who he is. And so it's like a, a, a personality, you know, issue here versus a system issue here. Or, well, I, I can, I can de- sort of describe the di- the social dynamic of, and, and this has been written about and like Charles Murray wrote this book called in our hands, how, you know, replacing the welfare state. Okay. Which is, you know, sort of the, the American enterprise institutes version of the, of the unconditional basic income. Yeah. Uh, the, the way it works socially is everybody knows that there's a certain amount of money that's going out to everybody. Person, this my situation, not not everybody, but let's go with the the UBI argument for the moment. Okay, so it's like you got the guy that's being this couch potato, and and he can't really you know get his act together to do much of anything. But you know, and maybe he's got an extreme example. You've got you know he's like just drinking a bunch of booze or you know smoking pot or who knows what he's doing with his money. Well, now when the people around him have resources, they can bring their resources to bear on dealing with his situation. That's why Murray called it in our hands. Hmm. Okay, it's no longer in the hands of the community organizers. It's no longer in the hands of the social workers. Okay, it's in our hands, and we can bring social pressure to bear on this guy. Sure. Right, and that social pressure could get to the point of, well, if you're going to be, you know, be that way, we're just going to like let, let you go ahead and just, you know, decay and die. Mm-hmm. That will happen, especially if you've got resource limitations. Right. Now, what I'm talking about doing is a bit different because I'm trying to say, okay, right now, young men end up as incels because they can't outbid the economy for the fertile years of young women. Correct. Yes, that's right. They can't compete. That's what it is. They can't, they can't out. But very importantly for eugenics, they can't outbid the economy for the fertile years of young women. All right. At the very least, the the young women are desired as office ornaments, if nothing else. Okay. <laughs> that's one. That's one application. Yes. So, but that's the kind of thing, and then you end up with this this just horrifying situation. Of, you know what that that where young men are being you know sexually humiliated and, and essentially sexually tortured by the economy okay and by the way don't forget about that fact when you're thinking about what might motivate people to actually take action because if they get a whiff of being released from the thumb screws i mean a real whiff like for example if you know girls start looking at them in a different way than they used to because things are happening around them yeah they start figuring out what it is, what the gradient of the of the situation is, that they might be able to help along to get more of that kind mm-hmm. of attention. Okay, this is the kind of cascade that can happen. Okay. Okay. So 
yeah, you get you get a situation where you start sending out the economic rent to the young men as the aristocracy, as opposed to whoever can grab a hold of the stock owner, uh, most most stock in some network effect monopoly, or whatever any kind of other you know economic rent seeking that you do, which can include land ownership, by the way. Hmm. Okay, that's like the most ancient form of, of network effect ownership. Okay, is this eugenic though? I mean, because if you're just giving out without any any requirement for performance to a guy, why would he have any incentive to perform? And then how does the woman distinguish between, I guess she would always prefer some ostensibly better guy than the other guy, but it, it I wonder if this is eugenic, it, but that's, you understand where I'm coming from on that? Yeah, or, I, I understand where you're coming from. And that, and that's where I get back to the thing about what created whites. Okay. Okay. What created whites is there was a limited set of resources and you had an individual head of household and another individual head of household that met in nature in conflict over that. Now, one of the limited resources is high quality women, especially when they're all being sucked into New York City and turned into <laughs> concubines. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I moved back. To, I moved back to Iowa, and baby, there was it was you know what the gene pool got drained by these guys. No, this is a real problem. I mean, it's totally true. You go to New York City, and it's like, well, where are you from? Oh, I'm from the Midwest, or I'm from Kiev, Ukraine. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, and it's yeah, not it, good because well, it was well you know, tied their tubes. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, talk about sterilizing the the poor Jews in the in the crowd. Well, uh, Steve Saylor calls these cities IQ shredders right. because they basically concentrate huge amounts of like, your best and brightest um, white collar class and your technical class. Yeah. Situations where they have no incentive and no resources to procreate. Yeah, and you also you're also shredding beauty. Yeah. Big okay. time. Big time. You're, you're shredding all of the things that our environment of a level evolutionary adaptedness created mm -hmm. and they're doing it fast. Okay. Yeah. And I'm saying we got to get back in touch with who we are, what created us. So if we do that, now you got like, so these guys that you're concerned about, like sitting around not doing anything. Right. And so what's going to get them to do anything? Well, one thing that's going to get them to do something is let's bring some of these women back from New York city. Before, like, they turn into monsters and want to, you know, and 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 something else that that because that that will motivate them, you yeah. know, if they like that. And if like somebody doesn't cooperate in that effort to like you know figure out what it's going to take to get those women back, those high quality, beautiful IQ high IQ women back, well, guess what's going to happen to him? Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Um, okay. Yeah. I get it. I get it. I get it. We can talk about other things here, but like you know, if you, if you want to get into the UBI, read "In Our Hands" by Charles Murray okay. for a less based individualistic approach to things. Okay, <laughs> you know, he happens to be from Iowa as well. He just okay. got got screwed over because he went into into Harvard when the Jews were just taking over the early '60s and decided he had to become one of their butt goys. But he's still got a little bit, a little bit of integrity left. Okay. Yeah, he uh, actually his book coming apart was um, 
I thought, fairly well done and interesting. It was not trying to indict like the right the white rural workers and the white working class as much as it was trying to uh, prescribe an understanding for their current plight and how to help them. Well, he's also talking part. about what we we were talking about with New York taking up all the high IQ, high quality, beautiful, whatever people. And those people are sort of segregating themselves from everybody else. And you could call that eugenics, but it's, it's sort of uh, trying to balance like a, a little thimble or some kind of like a needle on, on top of a, a spinning spinning plate it's like it's going to fall over eventually like you need some like stability in that ivory tower i think that's the risk in my opinion but i I thought the book i haven't read it but i thought it was about how like the the best of the best are just segregating from the worst of the worst is am i mistaken on that you're not totally mistaken no i mean basically in coming apart i think the Part of the working theory was that uh, at some point, starting in the '60s, again, you know, '60s coming up as this paradigm shift. Um, really, the white working class and the upper class whites began to have little in common. They no longer shared the same civic culture. They no longer yeah. kind of even lived side by side. It's completely true. They, you know, they completely uh, disintegrated all bonds with each other. And then I think that's why class warfare and class warfare rhetoric and other things like that became popular in America because there was this real social disintegration into what felt like classes where that had not really existed before. Yeah. And so naturally when it feels like there's classes, people are more susceptible to this notion of there being a class warfare problem to begin with. Hmm. On, on, I've asked a lot of questions. Um, Nick probably <laughs> taking something out of the oven because of the internet uh, connection. But um, Hans, do you have any any questions or, or thoughts you want to well, go I, into uh, before we conclude? I think we can end maybe on a more um, poignant note. Um, James, what do you think of what's going on with the coronavirus situation? Do you see a way out of it as it currently stands? Well, there, there are rumors that there is a, a treatment that can you know, diminish talking the, about the chloroquinine stuff. Yeah. yeah. In, in com- combination with the uh, zinc. Uh, well, not, not just zinc, but also the, there was an antibiotic. I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, there, you know, that may actually bring it to an end fairly quickly. I don't know. I mean, but the thing is not going to bring it into is what's triggered off in the financial markets. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> that is such a train wreck. Yeah. yeah, my portfolio is gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, given you're in uh, my general generation cohort, it wasn't much to begin with, probably. That's also true. I didn't really have much in there, but on the same level, it you know it definitely took a hit. But yeah, I mean, someone the other day, some was like, "I hope you're diversifying," and I was like, "I think it's already past that, buddy." <laughs> Are you buying on the dip? <laughs> God, with what? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, things are things are we're already in a really serious meta stable state with the with the finances and uh, especially since 2008. Oh god. I mean, you how know, did that, you feel when Steve Mnuchin 
like the guy he literally looks like from another planet he just looks like some kind of amphibian standing in front of like uh mr airy and donald trump and he's like we're gonna give out uh the checks to the american people mr goldman sachs thanks thanks a lot yeah i just had this visceral reaction i'm like oh god this system is freaking hosed it's like look yeah. at this crap well, it's really hosed if that's the only solution is we're going to give you give you some money, give you some cash. It's like, wow, no, nothing. Thanks. That'll more, go for <laughs> no, nothing really more innovative than that. Like a like a 15 year old micro econ <laughs> student could have come up with that. Yeah. And the, and the Democrats, that's like I said, they're, they're, they're piling on with with all kinds of requirements about how you're going to do this. And one of the things that yeah. I, there's the Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, uh, Arab Representatives got this thing where oh, it's going to, to leave out, or something. Or yeah, she's she's going yeah, to give out money to like non-citizens, right? What? <laughs> it's all the, no, we can't have this. We we got to give it out to non-citizens too. Oh you know? my god! Well, yeah. One of the interesting stipulations that Pelosi, I think, I saw is shoved into this drama, were many interesting stipulations. One of which being that um, Pelosi is demanding a bailout of the U.S. Postal Service. Along with um, Wait a minute. neutral when, when carbon emissions, okay. neutral carbon emissions from the entire American airline industry, and <laughs> and data on greenhouse gas emissions for every single U.S. domestic flight, every single flight. Dude, private. everybody is just dusting off their white paper, and it's like, see, right. if you had done this, everything would be fine. I'm like, dude, oh, you're not the only person saying that. I think that what you know, James Craig. Maybe you see it similarly, but how I see this is that uh, everyone knows there's going to be a bailout and there's going to be money on the table. So everyone is rushing to get their interests mm. filled immediately because there's going to be plenty of money to go around. There's a sort of a slush fund effect going on right now and everyone wants to get paid. Right. And uh, the thing is that you still are going to have the situation where, I mean, people are not going to put up with another one of these 2008 bailout situations. Right. I mean, they, they burned up a lot of, just like this this Iraq war thing, you know, it burned up all kinds of social capital for the oh, federal yeah. government. You know, the 2008 thing burned up even more on both the right and the left. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're in a situation now, especially after Trump got elected and you, you know, awoke this this you know, spirit of, of the founding culture of the United States, which, you know, like I said, it created all these people. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, it's just not going to end well for them. And so there's, they really have to, I don't think that they're going to be able to, to, you know, discipline themselves because they've never been subjected to the kind of discipline that they need and the kind of discipline that they need just maybe physical, Okay. I mean, well, I know. think what's interesting is that the pre the prescribed solution to the financial problem was immediately talk from the Fed of basically bringing back QE, and well, that's all they can do. I'm not defending the them, but what else can they do? Well, the thinking now is that we're gonna we're going to basically guarantee. Now they're talking about just guarantees because there is a limit on how much money they can inject, and there they're basically is? saying that we're going to guarantee money market funds and we're going to guarantee the insurance market and we're going to guarantee certain industries we're going to give guarantees to the restaurant industry and and the, uh, the hotel the hospitality industry and at first it seems kind of odd and then you realize that 
um, you know, like 10% of the American economy is basic, uh, the American workforce is built on restaurants and hospitality. And suddenly, you know, it becomes very apparent why these industries are getting front row access to bailout Wait, money. Does that include retail? Restaurants and hotels? That doesn't include retail, no. 10%? That's Something like 10% huge. of the, work, sorry, the workforce oh, is in okay. things like that. Okay. But effectively, yeah. that's what, like, that ties back to 10% of your consumer spending. So effectively, yeah. 10% oh, of it's, your economy. This is a mess. It's a huge mess. Yeah. I saw a chart today. I'll post it on the video. But it was showing um, unemployment claims. And I don't think it has ever skyrocketed at the pace in which it has jumped. It is insane. I mean, it went from like 200,000 to 600,000 in a matter of a couple weeks. It's a, it's a hockey stick. And, you know, 2008 was six months, you know, something like that to reach that level. And But um, this is nuts, man. Absolutely crazy. Well, you know, they say that politics is the art of the possible. So it's like, you know, what can they do? Mm. Well, uh, you know, I, you know, if they let me just like write a law, I could tell them how they could sort of hold the, the, the federal government together. And it would basically be my 1992 paper about getting rid of the welfare state with the citizens dividend and getting rid of taxes on activity with a single tax on net assets. Okay. That funds that. Okay. But that means that the Democrats would have to give up all of their control. Oh, of course. The delivery of social goods, well, and because they'd be in our hands. Well, that, that's like, what people were thinking sense. about Yang. Not really was he like a Republican psyop or something? Because the the Democrats would lose all of the, as you say, all of the the sinecure control that they have over these little voter blocks that they manipulate, yeah, and they would they wouldn't like that at all. That's the, their their whole game is public sector rent seeking. Yeah, and the the Republicans' whole game is private sector rent seeking. Okay. And that's why you do, you know, you get this thing where you, you're taxing that assets instead of activity. So people who are productive can accumulate assets because they're not being taxed on their income, you know, capital gains or any of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, if you've got assets, well, you better invest them productively, okay? If you do, do things, you know, set up things correctly. But they're not going to do this stuff because, they're, you know, they've got this, this deadly embrace that's going on between the left and the right. That's all about centralization of power, and that is essentially late-stage civilization. Right. Mm. So, what do you do about? You know, how do you prepare for the collapse? I mean, quite seriously. I mean, they they might think that they're going to be able to like dole dole stuff out with strings attached and things like that, but I think the people, especially given the the way this whole thing whole this way this thing hit. Yeah. People are, are starting to realize that we've gotten into a situation where we've really overemphasized centralization and efficiency and underemphasized diversity, true diversity and yeah. resilience. Yes, okay. I think that's well said. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to get across to people about sortocracy and, and how you try to like, you know, uphold individual choice by having this kind of territorial allocation that's sort of a per capita allocation of territory to try to avoid, you know, armed conflicts over territory. And, and, but then make it so that everybody can have borders that they really want to have morally pure communities, which is consistent with this paradoxical characteristic of, of European greatness, mm -hmm. which is 
we're individualistic, but we're highly moral, <laughs> and we're actually ultimately moral about things. We, we share a moral about individual choice, but we do not share the the specific morals about our individual communities because they have to be adapted to our local environment and our, our own beliefs and, and how we are creating, how we are co-creating a, a, a future for ourselves, humanity, and ho- ultimately a species if we, do the, if we do the evolution right. We have to accept the fact that, that our lineages may die out for the better, right? All eugenics has to be that way. And we have to decide what that is.